You're now entering a restricted zone. Welcome to Area 52. Hello, and welcome back once again to the Area 52 podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Hope you guys had a good week. Uh, we are once uh, again back deep underground at the secret Area 52 recording facilities. Um, and once again, uh, we are sans Melissa. I'm starting to worry. Yeah. She's, I really am. You, like if, if our two, uh-huh. if like the two seasons of, of the show crossed over and the killer from the first season got the guest star from the second season, mm-hmm. and season mm-hmm. three is going to be mm-hmm. all, all the mystery. I think mm-hmm. Scientology got her. Yeah, it might. That was the last time she was black man. She was very paranoid of that. So, yeah, she was. Yeah, and and and, but to be fair, she's just been very busy. Very busy. She's got. She has a job, and from what I understand, me and Sasha were trying to schedule a podcast with her, and she didn't have a day off for like what two weeks straight or something like that. Yeah, she works at a very successful restaurant. So. Oh, yeah. she does? Yeah, no more blood banking for her. Oh, so she's not doing that anymore. No. The vampire night shift. And, and if you work vampire at a... Vampire night shift. That sounds like a, <laughs> like a David Bowie album from 1978 during his, during his cocaine. It does. Uh, the vampire night shift. All right, go on. <laughs> That's it. All right. So stupid. Um, it's been an interesting week. To be honest... Um, this this has been a very news filled week. We have a lot of updates before we get into um, today's topic. But um, first and foremost, I think we need to update you about the local case we've been following for the last two episodes, uh, the case of Paul Swenson, yes. which came to a, well a very tragic uh, conclusion this week. Sad, very sad. Uh, they actually found Paul's body uh, floating in Mill Creek. That's one of the creeks that runs through. Here in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, They found his body Sunday at about 4 p.m. However, it was Monday that they uh, determined uh, indefinitely that it was Paul via tattoos. And I I believe he had identification in his pocket on him. Um, But he was very, uh, very much decomposed. Mm. Um, That was the uh, official report that his body was in poor condition. So... Very tragic. Um, that and, and being that decomposed, it it, le- it leads to you to me. Believe. I mean, they, there a lot of people were suggesting like, oh, he must have just fallen. I mean, but to me, a body that's, I mean, I would say that he would have almost been in the water, probably, um, almost after immediately after he went missing would be my opinion. I don't know much about so he uh, so all forensics those... and things like that. But it's kind of interesting because there was a reported sighting of him in that exact area. Um, the morning after, so on the 28th of July, he went missing on the 27th of July. Um, they found his car kind of down. There's kind of a, a, a screen cap that I have of the locations in different colors. So they show, you know, the O'Reilly, which was the last place that his phone was pinged. But um, the last known sighting of him was the next morning down around this area. So um, it's kind of interesting, though, because... When the body was reported, it was moving. It was floating and moving. And by the time that the cops got there, within just a few minutes, it had traveled two blocks in the creek. So um, my idea is that it was probably lodged somewhere because we had so much heavy rainfall recently that, I mean, that happened right after those storms. So I'm guessing that it was dislodged and, you know, began moving. And that was 
probably the reason that he was found, to be mm. honest, was that rainfall. So, um, so okay. all those reports of people that, that said that they saw him or that he was going to the gym and stuff like that probably false. I at think this point. those those leads have been checked out a while ago. And those were the, all there were only like and... w- like one mm. confirmed sighting. Um, there was some interesting information I did fail to mention last time on the podcast regarding this, and I believe that that was at Wade Auto Group. He stopped. And he had actually asked if he could leave his car on the lot. And he was told no. And so when he left, uh, they said that he was followed by another. He was being trailed by another vehicle. So I don't know. I mean, to be honest, the, Paul's body is great closure for the family. You know, it's it's a very. Tra- I, I did not expect this to be the outcome. And honestly, I think all of my speculation and conspiracy was truly just a happier mindset. It was me believing that he had just left or that this was a fight or something. I didn't want to think he was dead. So I think the conspiracies and, and the speculation was uh, people hoping that something else was going to come of this other than him being found hmm. not alive. But I think this just begs more questions now um, well, and, and because we still don't know how he got in the water. Right. Um, we don't know about his car. We don't know if it was stolen from him, if he sold it. Um, because that following morning on that sighting, a lot of people had reported that they saw him riding a bike. Mm. So, I mean, if he, if he sold his car or, or anything like that, and I mean, he had sold off possessions, but didn't have the cash on him. Uh, the coroner did say that he ruled out foul play just because of no obvious signs. So, I mean, that was his wording. I'm guessing that just means no trauma nothing like a gunshot or a stab wound or anything like that. So yeah. no obvious signs of foul play. However, uh, we will have to await the toxicology reports, which could take several weeks. They say maybe six to eight. I don't. That's I don't crazy. know, but that's a long time. Yeah. Um. Well, I I I do hope, um, like you said, that this brings some closure to the family. Yeah. Um. But the whys, uh, and and why he was out and what he was mm-hmm. doing and and how he went from, uh, being a, a you know a a relatively well-adjusted person with a wife and a child to ending up in a creek. It's sad. Yeah. I really hope that they figure that out. So you also said that there was an update. Um, when we talked about uh, in our in our episode about the missing 411 documentary, yeah. the whole, the whole uh, thing that Dave Politis did, yeah. there was the story inside his documentary, inside the missing 411 documentary that was tied into his theories, was tied in because this young child had been there and then they turned around. Well, according to the family, the, the official story was that they were there. Uh, he was there with the grandfather. They, five, you know, just a couple minutes had gone by and he was gone. No trace of him. Right. And it was tied in with this whole missing 411 uh, phenomenon of people that go missing in national parks. And his documentary was kind of wrapped around this because the case was unfolding as his documentary was filming. So they got some uh, really interesting and up-close access to the family as this drama was kind of unfolding. However, apparently there have been some updates that may lead people to believe otherwise. I mean, there have been updates as as recent as 2016. So uh, I think that this is just something that was really overlooked in uh, the 411 documentary. And I don't actually know like the time frame of when... Um, he made that versus when where they were at in the course of this trial. Right. But I mean, this happened in 2015. Right. So it's a it's a very new case. Sure. Um, some of the interesting things to mention. Um, remember that we are talking about little Dior Coons Jr. His father is also named Dior. Um, but some people call him Vernal. So we might just stick with that. Um, just to keep things straight. And his mother Jessica. 
Uh, they were actually engaged at the time when this happened. Um, but it's kind of interesting now because after, I think it was only about five months later, they were separated and she was remarried. So Jessica is actually not with Vernal anymore, Dior's father. Mm. They are separated and she has been remarried. So that's kind of an interesting piece of information. I mean, that can happen if a tragedy comes between Drive you. There two could people be, together. It, it really can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I can understand those kinds of things. But some of the things that were interesting were... Um, some of the things that were said by people who were very close to them and who were either hired by them or offered their help on the case. And if you kind of remember, there was um, a, a private investigator who came forward and who offered their help and said, you know, I will, I'm trying to look up his name. I remember the other guy's name. I'm just trying to look up the first, I just couldn't remember it off the top of my head. But the first guy who comes forward, he was this older guy and he said, I'll offer my help. I won't charge you as long as you are truthful with me. So um, he writes them a letter, and you can find this letter, and he just basically tells them, I'm withdrawing from this investigation because I do not believe that you are being uh, completely honest with me. I think that you are hindering my abilities to locate your son. I think you are um, withholding evidence, um, all sorts of things like that, and he's really upset with them. So this is the first guy who has offered to help them. Hmm. Uh, After this happens, another private investigator is hired by the family, and his name is Philip Klein. So... He is hired by the family. He starts working for them. And shortly after, he comes out and he kind of has a statement against them as well and says, I think that they are both liars. Um, Dior Sr. had failed his uh, polygraph test six times. Six times. Six times. Um, Jessica had failed hers four to five. And they were saying on little things, too, like, you know, when they ask him, are you here with the intention to be honest, you know, with the questions that we ask you? I mean, so right off the bat, little they were they were failing like big red flag things. So both of them have never passed a polygraph test. Um, polygraph tests don't hold up in court, though. Correct? They don't. And and it and it can be a, a good and a bad thing because you can look at it and go, hey, if a polygraph uh, test clears me. That's exonerating evidence. But mm-hmm. if something happens where even the littlest thing seems off within a polygraph test, yeah. it can be very damning evidence. But for them, it was six times. I mean, like, they didn't just give them one and, like, I don't know. Were they six for six or did they take, like, ten and they failed No, I think six. they just failed every, every one every that they have. I can look more into that. Please mm. don't. take. My, but they did fail that many. Sorry, wow. my chair is right next to the thing, so it's Are you making some over sounds. There? Yeah. Um, You're just like, just listen, I'm not farting on the podcast. So, um, maybe I am. You never know. You, you never know. We might know. <laughs> what me and Sasha might know. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, so, where was I? Uh, okay, so Dior and Jessica, Dior Sr. and Jessica, they are split. Yeah. Dior actually takes a uh, trucking job in another company, in another state. So, I think he still lives in Idaho, but his job is within another state. Hmm. So he he drives truck and and does that. It's kind of interesting because, you know, you have Philip, this Philip Klein, this private investigator who comes out and says, I don't think they're being honest. They're both liars. Jessica has told us that she knows where Dior Jr.'s body is, but she won't tell the rest of the story. And then there's kind of conflicting, you know, reports about saying that the grandpa, Bob, never gave a, a statement to police and that he lawyered up. But then they're saying that they only have one from him. And then remember that there was Isaac Greenwand, who was there as well, who was the grandpa's friend. And he was kind of suspicious. But his story 
was exactly the same all four times he told it. Hmm. And Jessica and uh, Dior Sr. did not have stories that were cohesive uh, any of the times that they hmm. told them. So they changed every single time. Well, um, there's some interesting things there because there was a later interview that Jessica did where she kind of like pointed fingers at Dior Sr. She's like, I think that maybe he could have hurt him, which is just so weird that she would be kind of flipping her. Right. Trying to throw her, him under her the st- bus. Right. It's, it's very interesting. So um, they were also evicted from their apartment. And when this happened, there were some items that they left behind. And uh, among them were things like uh, some boxcars that they had said were missing before. And a camo jacket that was what Dior was supposedly wearing when he went missing. And you can look at that and say, well, kids, and especially in Idaho, they they kind of have that lifestyle, that wilderness lifestyle, if you will. Sure. Where two camo jackets is not really that weird. But it is kind of interesting because they just were left behind in, in a dumpster. And that's how the police found them because they were taken out by the landlord because they were evicted. So. Hmm. Um, and they also found a credit card that had like some family purchases on it that they, but they didn't say what that was. So that was kind of weird. And then, um, there was like another piece of evidence, but so some interesting things. So, I mean, I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys think. A lot of people do not think that little Dior was ever on the mountain that day, that the whole camping, the whole story, the whole camping story was a cover up for an accident or an intentional death that happened and that the grandpa, you know, and is in on it too. And I don't know. Well, it, it might be interesting to go back over that documentary and rewatch it with fresh eyes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I even watch videos like on their body language of Jessica and Dior Sr. doing interviews with um, people, journalists and, and things like that. And they seem to have pretty good indications of that. But then you look at all this other stuff and you go, well, you know, what happened? And why, do you, why are all of your private investigators quitting you and, right. and thinking it can't, you know, if it was just one, I would understand. Yeah. But. So that's an interesting. So sums, sums up there. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, again, with with so many of these, and you hear this time and time again, nobody. A lot of times, nobody, no crime, right? right. Like they can't charge these people with anything as long as this little boy is missing. And so mm-hmm. it's really sad because if they know what's happening, if those two know what happened, there's still probably a lot of other family members who need closure there. Yeah, so I think it's, it's a lot like the Casey Anthony case, yeah. where even if something happened to the body and they just needed long enough for it to either be out of the system or the decay and, and decomposition to come in yeah, and, and erase yeah. the the wounds or whatever it was that when you know uh, I don't, what's the word incriminate them yeah I, that might be it I don't know so maybe maybe someday their conscience will catch up with them cool oh I really hope so I hope that thanks for that that was a really cool update um, I also have one more so whenever you're ready yeah and I wanted to have, you had an update about. Uh, D.B. Cooper? Cooper. That's right. A new piece of information has been found. I haven't heard this. I told you. I don't want to know until you tell me. Okay. All right. It says a strap. What's the backstory in case? I know I haven't heard and there might be new listeners. You know D.B. Cooper. No. D.B. Cooper, the infamous man who got on on a plane and... And uh, said he he was going to rob it and said he had a bomb and then he jumped oh, out. from the, way back. Yeah. yeah. He, so this happened out. in 1971, actually. Yes. And, jumped uh, out of the plane. Yeah. And they were kind of over Washington, again. Oregon area. And he asked for $200,000 in cash. Yep. Um, and I think he I think he put all the people in the cockpit. Yeah. And when they realized that there was a depression in the air, uh, uh, the air pressure in the cabin, yeah. they, there was a decrease they in that. He jumped. They looked out and they, they saw that it, the hatch was open and he was gone. And all he jumped out with 
He asked for four parachutes. Yeah, I think I think what had happened is didn't they land the plane and people got off and then he took off with the flight crew yeah, and the pilot again. Yeah, he asked again for four parachutes and the money and then put. Yeah, but you're he right. was in a business suit, slacks, slacks, slacks and, some and nice, shoes. nice shiny Fox. shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah jumped out seriously. And down, and some people think he got away. Some mm-hmm. people think he didn't. What's your update? Though? Um, back in the '80s, if you remember, they found some cash. I think along is it the Columbus River that runs through that I is the separating between Washington and. Anyways, I believe it's the Columbus River, and they found uh, about $5,800 in cash buried along the banks there. Wasn't it kind of stacked up? Yeah, kind of weird, like on top of each other, kind of like uh, perpendicular to kind of going that way. Um, But most recently, uh, it says a strap, perhaps from the famed D.B. Cooper's parachute, was reportedly found recently in the Pacific Northwest and handed over to the FBI as new evidence in the 46-year-old hijacking case. And this is kind of interesting because it was last year that the FBI decided that they were going to close this. It was no longer an open investigation, which is kind of interesting. But they just decided they have exhausted every lead and they they weren't going to go anywhere with it. Um, So once that went public, people were able to look into it. And so people kind of picked that up. So So they they went and they found some parachute material in the rainforest of Washington and then decided to DNA test. It, Let or? me. Well, they have. I don't know if they've DNA tested, but what happened was so this guy, he's uh, his name is Tom Colbert and his wife who goes with him. Um, they are TV and film executives uh, and they have a 40 member cold case team. Uh, the piece of canvas was located on a private property in an unreleased location thought to be uh, thought by a private D.B. Cooper investigator to be perhaps where Cooper buried his remaining cash after jumping from a Boeing 727 with $200,000 in ransom money, according to reports. So they had actually, the reason that they went there was because of these FBI files. They had something and someone claiming that they knew where the rest of the money was buried. And that was in this FBI file. And uh, so they just decided, hey, this is public information. It's the FBI has kind of stepped away from it now. So they went to this where this was supposedly said and they found this parachute strap. So it's pretty interesting. That is, well... It is interesting. I think I think the the only part of me in doubt was like, hmm, people in television found something they could make a show out of. Like, but other that's the thing is that like you could, uh, you know, just it, it could just yeah. be a coincidence. That's what I do when I found this thing. So that's that's interesting. It is interesting. It'll but the interesting. FBI says that they although they have stopped pursuing the case, they will review any physical evidence of the parachutes or the money that turned up. Uh, it remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in the U.S. So they had two hundred thousand dollars in this. No, plane? The, the plane. He he said he had a bomb or yeah. something, and they landed the plane, and they gave the, somebody loaded the money on, and then they offloaded the passengers, and the plane took off again. So yeah, he was the only one on the plane with them. So yeah. And it's then, not even really. I mean, I guess it's a lot of. It's not really that much money, even in the seventies. I yeah, feel like it was a just weird... a thing to see if he could do it. They kind of think that they know who. Um... I think it was Bodie from Point Break. I think that's who it was. <laughs> yeah, where's like, Wesley Snipes? Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting though. I I would love to. And you know what's funny is that a lot of these things, you know, there there's things that are coming back around for these cases. DB Cooper. Um, I found one, and some people might have heard this. Uh, it was circulating online this week that apparently the identity of Jack the Ripper has now. According to a diary uh, that has been found, been identified. Shakespeare? 
Yeah, it was Shakespeare. Shakespeare. No, <laughs> Shakespeare. Uh, let me read you this. This is a um, uh, an article uh, by John Karoski that I found here. And this is for the last 120 years, his crimes have endured as some of the most grisly in history of serial killing, and his identity has remained one of the great unsolved mysteries of all time. But now, thanks to a groundbreaking new research, Jack the Ripper's identity may be a mystery no more. Author Robert Smith is set to publish a new book called 25 Years of the Diary of Jack the Ripper, The True Facts, in which he claims to have verified the authenticity of a document containing one man's confession to being Jack the Ripper. The man in question is Liverpool cotton merchant James Maybrick, and the document is believed to be his diary, first published, or I'm sorry, first discovered 25 years ago, but finally perhaps proven authentic. Now, the diary indeed contains clear confessions to the five murders credited to Jack the Ripper, as well as two others, and signs off with the following words, reports the Telegraph. Quote, I give my name to all that know of me, so history do tell. What love can do to a gentleman born, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. However, the diary's authenticity has long been mired in doubt. A Liverpoolian named Michael Barrett first shared the diary with the public in 92, offering several different stories as to where it came from. He once claimed it was a friend in a pub, once claimed it was from his own wife, and soon many thought the diary was simply a forgery. But now Smith's research claims to have proven that the diary was actually found in Maybrick's former home uh, and that it was written by Maybrick himself in 1888 or 1889. Smith cites job timesheets in proving that several electricians were working in the former Maybrick home and found the diary underneath the floorboards in Maybrick's bedroom on March 9, 1992. Um, the workers then gave it to Barrett in hopes that he could sell it to a publisher. Um, he's always believed that it was real. Uh, it says, furthermore, a pocket watch was found in 93 bearing engravings reading J. Maybrick, quote, I am Jack, and containing the initials of the five victims. Tests on the watch were not fully conclusive, but suggested that it was not a modern forgery. So, I mean, there's, and there's quite a bit more to this. Um, it says, with details so hazy, it remains unclear exactly how Maybrick died and whether or not Maybrick himself committed five of the most infamous murders in modern day history. Mm-hmm. Is Jack the Ripper a cult hero? Is his killings accepted and respected by people on Earth now? I don't know what, what? you. I don't know what the fuck you're asking <laughs> me. I, I, do you mean like do people respect him as a killer? Yeah. Like, do they think he's no? Cool? I think that yeah. I think that people oh, hold up the iconography of an unsolved murder, like mm-hmm. with anything, like uh, why Elvis is still on, you know. Uh, plates and pillows and shit and people still go to graceland because when people die or when claims are unsolved or you know whatever it is when there was more to know people kind of hold it as iconic but i i don't think anybody i don't know if we need to compare jack to elvis but, but you know what i mean like it's the same type of thing where like if you or jfk or any of these crimes where somebody's murdered no, or I know when somebody dies too early right like people relish in in there's a difference between a cult i think a cult hero and the iconography of an unsolved crime but either way, when death is involved or it's unsolved or it's early, I think people grasp onto it. It's just our curiosity. It's weird you know? that they get celebrity uh, serial killers mm-hmm. and that women want to marry them when they're in prison. Yeah. That is weird. I don't think it's happened for years. And I think it was only because uh, when when these things happened um, and these people swept the news, it was the only story. Nowadays, you can turn to 700 other channels and turn it. But back then, when it was Bundy, it was on every channel and People everybody are always was talking. Getting disemboweled now. Yeah, it's, it's all, everywhere. Yeah, dis- it's, it's, old, it's old hat now. Um, but you know what? They have the Dear Boss letters. 
they think are the most authentic of the ones that Jack the Ripper sent to the police. So, I mean, they right. can compare handwriting, and right? And I, th- I think maybe that's what they're working on. And, oh. I, I, and I, he's, he's publishing a book. I'd like to hear more about his findings. But, you know, there's so many different people who claim to know exactly who Jack the Ripper is. In fact, we're now on, what, episode six of this H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, Jack the Ripper series over yeah. here, American Ripper. And Jesus Christ, it could have been one episode. Oh, yeah. It's the... the They've been milking this thing the so hard. There's no is skin its own left episode. on the teeth. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so funny. like just get to it. Um, but whatever. Um, they like spend a lot of time lost in thought. Yeah, <laughs> just fucking <laughs> having coffee and talking yeah. about bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's all right. Um, here's another. This is another story. Uh, this is this is amazing. I want to read you this as is. Okay, this is. Uh, this was published on August 8th. Um, I don't know. This, uh, a man in. Hang in there, baby. I'm sorry. This is just so ridiculous. <laughs> Daryl Whitaker from Glenwood Springs in Colorado claims a Sasquatch attacked him <laughs> and attempted to rape him while he was walking in the woods. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now here's the problem. Poor Daryl. Right. If this is any if any of this is real, if this is not some fucking joke, but if this was real oh, and this happened God. to this man, how first of all, oh. right, how do you come out and say, Oh my God, I was just almost raped by a Bigfoot? That takes such bravery. And then everybody goes, Shut the fuck up, Daryl. And he goes, No, his Bigfoot dick was trying to get and he's just oh, he can, would it be Harry? I like I with, am, with the paint with the Sasquatch would like he have Uh, uh, the squat shaft shaft squatch yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't know but listen the 57 year old man was I assume it would look much like a a gorilla's penis I don't know what gorilla penises look like I'm sure somebody does I'm sure they're online somewhere oh Sasquatch's smell yeah they probably have big old stinky Sasquatch dicks (laughs) now listen the 57 year old man was walking to his hunting cabin on Sunday to see if it had suffered any damage during the winter all (laughs) of a sudden (laughs) a large gorilla like creature dropped from a tree in front of him and punched him in the face it was like it got violent. Yeah, first? this thing was like, I'm bitch. <gasps> oh my god! It was at least eight foot you. tall, and it pun- its punches hurt like hell. I was knocked right out after the first blow. While Mr. Whitaker was trying to recover from the attack, the large humanoid creature began to tear his clothes while letting out some terrifying howls. When I gained consciousness, he had already torn my pants and was tearing through my underwear. I stabbed him in the shoulder with my hunting knife, and that made him run away. No, I have such a good imagination too. So I'm like, I'm really envisioning this. He's 57 year old man. Oh. Investigators found some extremely uh. large footprints on the site, which they believe are those of the aggressor. Daryl Whitaker is convinced that the creature who attacked him was a Sasquatch, but the investigators say it's more probable that the attacker is simply a particularly large and hairy man. Like a human? Yeah, like they believe they don't, so they don't believe that he Bigfoot. wasn't not attacked. They just think it was they by a large he, hairy man. That a large not a... naked hairy dude was hanging out in the trees, <laughs> jumped down, punched this guy, and tried to rape him. Oh my gosh. You know what? I can't. I, this is going to be a fucking joke. According to the victim, the attacker measured around eight feet tall, extremely hairy, had brown hair, dark brown eyes, and extremely large feet. 
If you have any any information, if his feet were that big, <laughs> contact the Glenwood Springs Police Department or the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Agency. Can you imagine they start? This is like the Cosby thing. They start getting close. <laughs> Me too. Jumped out of the tree. Oh. the bab the Duke. Oh my gosh. Oh, Here's gross. the thing. I have like a couple like. Thought thought paths here, okay? okay. Yeah, please. One, I'm like, you know what? It might have been just a big, giant, hairy man (laughs) who is like a wilderness man who (laughs) is tapping into his animalistic primal instincts. Or, but then, like, we'd have to say, okay, this is, well, I don't know, maybe this is 2017. Maybe we can have a gay Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, why is this Bigfoot raping this man? Maybe he was just a Bigfoot in heat. Why and he was just he? like, you know what? No. Uh, a, a hole's a hole. I don't believe that. I think Sasquatch are smarter than that. You think, you think Sasquatches have gender identif- identification issues? Maybe he was kicked out by the family. <laughs> Maybe they're not accepting of this yet. You know what? This is 2017 <laughs> Sasquatch That's what I said. Culture. It's 2017, so there could be one, but. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's That's the news from the world today. <laughs> Jeez. Um, oh, poor Daryl. Is he okay? I don't know. I don't it know. Didn't, it didn't do it, though, I don't right? know that it got in. Like, he's okay? Because that, that's he stabbed how it, it in his shoulder. I, I feel like that would be, like, you know, how how embarrassing for you if they were, like, listen, like, a bunch of, like, people from the BFRO uh, shows up and, like, we need to just swab your asshole for Bigfoot hairs <laughs> DNA, DNA and shit. And, like, <laughs> that's where the D, that's where it oh. comes from. Like, the true, the true proof that, like, we found a hair in this guy's asshole. And like, it was, uh... the rape <laughs> There'd be blood and plasma on that knife, though, if he... I would oh, assume so, too. Test that shit. Where's well, that knife? I don't know. I'm going to look more into this. I got sent this. I'm reading this, and I... Look, it's not written like it's a joke, like later. Like, yeah, it's not from like the onion or from but the... But it, it doesn't sound, it sounds fucking crazy to me. So they do believe that he was sexually assaulted, though? Well, at least assaulted. And what leads them to that? Like they well, obviously punched they him don't... in the face, and it was trying to tear his pants off. <laughs> well, but, so... let me, but let me just say this, okay? People can have drug-induced psychotic episodes where they hurt themselves. Sure. And so I'm just saying they have they have completely do not think that this is something he has fabricated. They at least believe that something found, attacked him. They found big footprints at the scene that led. Why invest- are they not molding these? I don't know. What they, the? I told you this caster. is the only thing I have. Get down there. <laughs> this is all I have. Okay. I will look into it more. Okay. But so that's what's the, the initial Google search. Uh, for this guy, Bigfoot rape. rape <laughs> Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Uh, oh, it was in Colorado. Yeah, yeah that's what, 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 what was the name again? It was uh, Daryl. Daryl. I'm, I just I'm assuming if you look up Bigfoot rape Daryl, Colorado, like it's not gonna be oh like my which God. one did you mean? <laughs> Don't go to Colorado if your name's Daryl. <laughs> All right, look, um, we've uh, we had a, like I said, we had a lot of updates, and we also wanted to get to uh, to an actual topic, to an actual uh, long form topic. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, is over the last few episodes, uh, we've kind of gotten into this weird rabbit hole of strange, um, 
you know, strange disappearances. Yeah, I've stories been on those that didn't a lot have lately. well, yeah, it's been it's been in the news, it's been here locally. And when you start looking into these things, you know, you start looking into the solder children, and then you start looking into Natalie Holloway and you start looking into the cruise ship disappearances, you start getting you know, finding these other things on these lists, these other uh directions, and then people have been sending us messages too saying um, in fact, one of the one of the the first one I want to talk about today was one that people kept telling you, right? They were like, "Hey, if you like, you really got to look into this disappearance." Which one? Uh, Mara Murray. Oh, I mean, we had heard of this. We had seen her on a couple different things, but I really liked that one because a lot of the lists that people talk about, they leave it so vague. They're always right. just like, "There was a car crash, and then she was gone." But, but there's, there's like so much information yeah, prior information. to like her disappearance and things that it's like this. Look, guys. You got to talk about this stuff. You can't just, yeah. I don't know. It's just like just telling the punchline to a joke with no setup. Yeah, and it's and, not. It doesn't. That wasn't a great example. Well, no, but it is because you go look. She disappeared. <laughs> she's it gone. Got out. <laughs> no, it's true. No, it's not. It's a very good example because you go if the if the punchline to the joke was, and then they got there and she was gone. Right, like you go. Well, what? What do you mean? How did they uh, get yeah, there? Well, who was what? gone and what's her name? Where's she? Yeah, because that's that's really yeah. true. There's a lot to Mara Murray. Um, so let's just start at Mara Murray. Okay. Sounds I'll give you good. the basic overview of the case. Here is the basic, uh, setup as per, you know, many of the articles and Wikipedias and things mm-hmm. like that. This is the basic setup. Murray was, um, a nursing student. She attended the university of Massachusetts Amherst, um, on the afternoon of February 9th, 2004. So this is a good 13 and a half years ago at yeah. this point. Before she left campus, um, she emailed her professors, work supervisors, telling everybody she was taking a week off due to a death in her family, although no, none was ever confirmed with any, any member of her family. Um, she took off, uh, and later on that night, uh, after a bunch of errands, got into a car accident, and then before police could arrive, had disappeared from the scene and has never been found. And... A lot of people just leave it at that. They just go, yeah, that's what happened. She, she, uh, you know, but it's not. There's so much more to this and so much more showing kind of a timeline of this very troubled young lady who was going through something. And, and it's so frustrating because even in the face of her disappearance, no one has ever come forward to say they were on the other end of the behavior that she was exhibiting. And it was really strange. So, I don't know. Let's uh, let's just kind of start at the beginning. Um, in November of 2003, three months before Mara Murray disappeared, um, she gets in trouble for using a stolen credit card. She had, it, I guess it was, was it that she had stolen the numbers out of an old, uh, was it like one of those sh- receipts where they go, you know, and she... And they, they, they like where I used to do that when I worked at, uh, at at Musicland in the mall back in the '90s. The first thing we ever did with credit cards was you put them down, yeah, and you yeah, put yeah, those yeah. carbon sheets on them, yeah. and you used the machine that went shrap shrap, yeah. and then it would have a carbon imprint of the card. And so I don't know if she, do you know that, uh, Danny? Did she have the card or did she just have the number? I know no, she was, it was using a receipt it. that she pulled out of the garbage. So she was just using it to uh, uh, buy food around campus and stuff like that. Um, um, but when you but when you mention that, it's interesting to note that when she was doing those things, she was I had actually heard that she was ordering pizzas. It's interesting to know that she was ordering enough food for uh, what would presumably two people. But it is something that was known among the family that Mara did suffer from 
bulimia. And so it's a common thought that maybe she would binge and she would buy extra food and then, you know, that would kind of fall into the outlines of an eating disorder. So that's some interesting information along with that. Now, one of the most famous pictures of Mara Murray is um, this picture that was taken around the time of her, after she had gotten in trouble, campus police had stopped by, right, her room uh, to talk to her or something and had taken a picture of her. And there's this picture of her just looking dead-faced, cold-eyed, really just... I mean, yeah, they stopped by because they needed to take a picture for her parole because that's what she was serving for the consequence of her uh, credit card fraud because I think it was only about $76. It wasn't like thousands that we're talking about here. So I don't think the people decided to press charges. And she was just serving parole on, you know, the basis that she had to be good. Um, So they did stop by to take her picture. And to me, it's like... I, I was in school. I remember going to college and I wouldn't really want, especially if I lived there, I didn't live on the, you know, the college campus in the dorms. I lived with my parents. So, um, but if I did and I was kind of there, I wouldn't want the cops showing up and taking a picture of me outside of my dorms because I mean, that's like, it's embarrassing. Yeah, totally. People it's start a talking. reputation ruiner. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's not like you're going to be like, Smiling. Smiling your brightest, you know, happiest moment right then. So, so you, you, you can justify that, that I can at picture. least sympathize with not liking a picture of yourself under certain circumstances. Absolutely. I'm a girl. <laughs> now, February 5th, so leading up to the, uh, apparent, or the disappearance, there's an interesting timeline. On February 5th, Murray spoke on the phone with her older sister, Kathleen, um, while Murray was on duty at her campus security job, uh, according to Kathleen, they discussed relationship problems that she was having with her fiance at around 1030 PM that night, while still on her shift, it was reported that Murray broke down in tears when her supervisor arrived at her desk. Uh, Murray was reported to be staring straight ahead into empty space. Uh, quote, a nursing book lay open in front of her. I don't know how to explain it. She was just completely zoned out. No reaction at all. This supervisor um, escorted Mara back to her dorm room at around 1.20 in the morning. Uh, when she asked her what was wrong, Murray only said two words, uh, my sister. Um, it appears she didn't sh- uh, share any kind of additional explanation as to what that meant or the reason for her breakdown. Now, it's interesting to point out, um, you you had an interesting finding that uh, the the thing that a lot of people don't mention that that same night that she had that breakdown, there was um, some uh, like an accident on campus, right? Yeah, a hit and run. Yeah, and and so some people speculate that she had actually left her could, could have left her job and been involved in that. Well, a lot of people think that there's a possibility because she was she actually worked as a security guard officer, whatever you want to call it, at this this campus. So she that's that's what she did. She sat at a desk. She kind of just did what security guard does. Um, So when she went on her break, it was so she called her sister. She goes on this break. And when she comes back, um, she's she's uh, she's crying. She's hysterical in a way that seems more than like if you were just being affected by your sister's relationship problems. Let's put it that way. So there's a lot of speculation at this point in time that people think that it's a possibility that Mara, I believe his name was like Vitri or Vetri. Um, he was a foreign exchange student and he was hit and he was, I mean, severely injured, like was in a coma, was in the hospital. He has no recollection of the night. He doesn't know what happened. So this is an unsolved mystery for all intents and purposes. Uh, and so, I mean, there's some speculation that, that people could think that 
Mara was responsible for this, and that's what she was truly hysterical over. Um, and another thing that kind of led people to think that was because of the damage that was found on her vehicle. Uh, it was not consistent with uh, just the crash alone that she had encountered on that road out there. And so, I don't know, a lot of people think that, I don't know. Because she had hit a guardrail on campus. Right in her in her car, or what? What was it that she had hit on campus? Because she had been in an accident, right? I'm talking about the accident that she walked away from, that no one ever saw her again. Right, but hadn't she also damaged her car in another accident? Oh, that was her. That was her, her dad's, dad's car. That was her dad's. Car. That happened later. That happened on the seventh, right? Yeah. Okay, so on February seventh, on Saturday, February seventh, her father Fred uh, came to Amherst. He told investigators that he and Mara had gone used car shopping. Um, and later went to dinner with a friend of Murray's. Although, wasn't it that the friend, when she was interviewed, said that neither her her or her father mentioned used car shopping at all, which was kind of weird? I thought the waitress asked what they were doing. Uh, you know, like, what, what are you guys doing here? What brings you? And, and most people would say that that's what they had been doing yeah. because it would kind of take up their day's activities. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because Fred, which is Mara's dad, actually brought with him. I mean, well... People say he brought $4,000 in cash with him, but the way that he tells it is that he actually withdrew that amount over the course of several ATM machines Hmm. while he was out, and when he didn't have enough money for the cash for a car that they wanted, he said he took it with him back home and was going to get more cash and bring it back, and then this whole thing happens with Mara, and then that's where we are. So um, it's interesting because, I don't know, we'll get into some more of these where I kind of... uh, Give you my theory, and yeah. I'll, I can tie up some of the facts. So I'd like I'm just to do that. So here, those. I'll give you. I'll kind of go along the timeline, and then I want you to kind of break in whenever you have something to add to it. So around, so after dinner, Murray uh, Mara drops her father off at the hotel room and borrows his Toyota Corolla, uh, brand new car, by the way. So he is and, brand and didn't he new. take them to buy alcohol, liquor. Mm-hmm. So this father, who's got a brand new car. Gives it to his daughter after he buys her alcohol and knows they're going to a party. Mm-hmm. That that sounds off like, campus. That sounds so. like what a dad does. Any good dad. <laughs> cool dads. So she arrives at the party around ten thirty p.m. At around ten thirty a.m., she leaves the party. At around three thirty a.m., and route back to her father's motel. She hits a guardrail on Route Nine in Hadley. We got to fix those times. I think you said, and at ten thirty she left, and then at ten thirty p.m. she arrives at the party. Yeah, and then you said ten thirty again at two thirty a.m. Yes, okay, there she, we go. At two thirty a.m. on Sunday, she leaves the party. At three thirty a.m., she's uh, hits the guardrail, uh, causes about ten thousand dollars worth of damage to her father's car. Um, it says that the responding officer wrote an accident report, but there is no documentation of any sobriety failed tests being conducted. Which seems weird too. It is weird. Um, and now I need to I need someone to explain the West Point thing to me because is that like a military academy mm-hmm. school? I guess she was a member of West Point as well. Hmm. So, and it's important to know that her father was a member too. And I think it was like her and her sister were were both members, and he was very proud of that fact. Um, so as far as the DUI and not being, uh, you know, breathalyzed or doing a field sobriety. People think that has to do with her UMass security uh, connection or her West Point connection, that it was kind of like uh, if campus police were the ones that came out and assisted her because they would have their own PD department, 
then, excuse me, that was redundant, their own police department, but they would maybe clear her. Mm. And so that's why it wasn't as heavy of a charge. Okay. Okay. Now, it's, it, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. Because her father has given a lot of reports as to what had happened, because obviously Mara can't. And he says, uh, so she was driven back to her father's motel room by, we heard police, but we also heard a tow truck driver. I've also, I heard the tow truck driver. So theory. I've heard both, mm-hmm. both things. Mm-hmm. And apparently stayed in his room, because they were, they were in a room, sharing a room that only had one bed, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so somehow she came into the room, which would have been locked, would have made some noise at least and got into bed and, and didn't wake her dad up and spend the rest of the night. I, I suppose that could happen. He says he doesn't know. Um, he says at 4.49 a.m. there was a cell phone call placed to Murray's boyfriend from Fred's phone as well in the records. So I guess she came into the room and took his phone and made a call at, at 5 a.m. Um, later, later that Sunday morning, Fred Murray... Uh, learned about the damage to his vehicle, figured it, or found out it would be covered by his auto insurance. So he rented a car, dropped Murray off at the university, and departed for Connecticut. Uh, at 11.30 that night, he called Mara to remind her to get some accident forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles, and they agreed to talk Monday night to discuss the forms and fill out the insurance claim via the phone. So he was like, the, not only is he the coolest dad ever, but he's also like, oh, you crashed my car? No worries. I'm just going to, it's it's covered. I'm just going to hop in my car and head on out. Like, this guy makes it sound like there was nothing about him that was angry. Like, which seems really out of place for a parent's reaction. Yeah. And I'd actually heard uh, kind of contradicting theories that he was extremely angry. And that when Moore went back to the hotel room that morning, that he was, like, violent with her. Hmm. So, so he's trying to cover his tail by saying, yeah. oh, shucks, yeah. she just came in. Gosh, golly. I I'd also heard that he, Fred Mori had a history of domestic violence. Mm. So that that's something that people kind of point at, too, and say it, it doesn't really seem like he's being super honest because everything he says is, I wasn't mad. I was just super, yeah. whatever, it's covered by my insurance. No big. Like, no, I, I'd heard different things. And to me, it's like being so far to the left like being so angelic seems like a, a, a you're covering your own yeah, ass you're trying totally. to make yourself I mean you could have always been like I was upset s- but I knew insurance was going to cover it so right. I Act like I didn't parent. go too hard on her but instead of just being like no no big it's all good my daughter's missing my car's wrecked no problem <laughs> well if he's buying alcohol for his daughter he, there's a good chance he drinks yeah. a lot too yeah, yeah. and yeah, it's still just, in the it, morning. You're a whiskey guy. I don't know. It still just doesn't seem like a like a like a, a parental reaction. It's, there's really something off about that. One thing that does bother me is that the police do say that Fred changes his story relating to the alcohol, and there's times when they say that he tells them, "I just waited in the car," and they went into the the alcohol store. Is that what the liquor store? And and the bought, hobby shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, bought the alcohol and I waited for them. And then there's a story where he tells it that he was waiting and got fed up and he went into the store and said, hurry up. There's a part where he tells a story and said he went into the liquor store and, and was kind of upset for waiting and says, hurry up. You know, I've been waiting. To me, I don't understand why this is not able to be confirmed because Mara's friend was with them. So why can't she say he waited in the car or yes, he did come in and, yeah. and yell at us to hurry up. So. I don't understand that, but yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these cases, especially when they're like 15 years old, like this, 
and you're kind of going back over information. There's a lot of these questions that you go, yeah, why, why wasn't this person? That seems like a very yeah. easy thing mm-hmm. to solve. So I'm with you. Um, so that was Sunday, which would have been February 8th, you know, the morning of February 8th. So mm-hmm. he goes back. They're going to talk the next day. So around midnight on Monday, so Sunday night, essentially, right? It's 11.59 after midnight. It's Monday now. So around midnight on Monday, February 9th, Murray used her personal computer to search MapQuest for directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont, which are resort towns, kind of bed and breakfasts, and yeah. So I think she had been there before. Yeah, didn't, didn't they say that? I think I think you're right. Like she had been somewhere. I think her mom's name was Christy, if I'm not mistaken. I thought she said that they took her there when she was young. I think her mom has since passed away. Mm. I think she passed away in 2009. So I think Fred is the only one left. But Mars' mother is not alive. Mm. At 1 p.m., Murray emailed her boyfriend, and she said, quote, I got your messages, but honestly, I don't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promise to call today, though. She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condominium in uh, Bartlett, uh, New Hampshire. In fact, it was the same Bartlett, New Hampshire condo association that her family had vacationed at in the past. So, yes. yeah, she had, she had been there, it says. Telephone records indicate that the call lasted three minutes. The owner did not rent the condo to Murray. At 1.13 p.m., Murray called a fellow nursing student for reasons unknown. At 1.24, Murray emailed work, uh, her supervisor at work at the nursing school and said she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family. No one in her family had died. She also said she would contact them when she returned. At 2.05 p.m., she called a number which provides recorded information about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. The call lasted approximately five minutes. 2.18 p.m., She telephoned her boyfriend and left a voice message promising him they would talk later. This call ended after one minute. So, I mean, she's obviously gearing up. She's preparing. She's, you know, she's doing something. Um, In her car, these are the things that she had packed. Clothing, toiletries, college textbooks, and birth control pills. Uh, When her room was searched later by campus police, they discovered most of her belongings packed in boxes and all the art removed from the walls. It was not clear whether Murray had packed them that day, but police at the time asserted she'd packed sometime between Sunday night and Monday morning. On top of all the boxes was a printed, or on top of the boxes was a printed email to Murray's boyfriend indicating trouble in their relationship. Um, as far as all the things being packed, Fred did come forward and say that the carpets had been cleaned in her dorm room or wherever, whatever she lived in over Christmas break. And so some people are saying that's why all the things were packed up. It could also be an indication that she was planning to leave. I'm not sure. But he did come out and say that. Fred well, said that. I know that when we pa- when we get our carpets cleaned, we take all the war- art off the walls. Mm-hmm. And I you just, put it in boxes on the floor. Yes, you take everything on the, off the walls and, and put, put it on the floor. And you put it the floor. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. Wait, ha- protocol. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever cleaned your carpets, Sasha? <laughs> Jesus, you heathen. <laughs> what we do. Um, at around 3.30 p.m., she drove uh, off the campus in her black Saturn sedan. At 3.40, she withdrew $280 from an ATM. Closed-circuit footage showed she was alone. Uh, at a nearby liquor store, she purchased about $40 worth of alcohol, including Bailey's Irish Cream, Kahlua, and vodka, and a box of Franzia wine. So she was going to get toasted on box wine and make some white Russians. That's more than $40 alcohol. It was 2004. Okay. So, you know, Fair enough. it's yeah. fine. 
That's like $65 in alcohol. That's yeah. a good night. Yeah. <laughs> At some point in the day, though, she also picked up the, the accident report forms from the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles. Um, she left and what Dan- was that for? For the accident that she'd gotten in with her dad's Okay, car. just making sure. Right. Because they were blank. They found those blank forms in her car. Correct? Right, yes. Um, she called to check her voicemail around 437, uh, and this was the last recorded use of her cell phone. To date, there is no indication she had informed anyone of her destination or the evidence that she had chosen one. So it just doesn't seem like she had a place to go or that and nobody's ever come forward to say, yes, she was coming to meet me. It's fascinating. Um, the accident, the actual accident that she got into was a sometime after 7 p.m. Um, a resident of Woodsville, New Hampshire, heard a thump outside of her house and through her window she could see a car up against the snowbank along Route 112, also known as Wild Amanusik. Amanusik Road? Is that what it, how you pronounce it? It's a big old word. The car pointed west on the eastbound side of the road. She telephoned the sheriff's department at 727 to report the accident. Um, at about the same time, another neighbor saw the car as well as someone walking around the vehicle. She witnessed a third neighbor pull up alongside the vehicle. This neighbor was a school bus driver returning home, and he noticed that the uh, young woman was not bleeding, but she was cold and shivering. He offered to telephone the cops, and she pleaded with him uh, not to call the cops, that she had already called AAA. Yeah. Which... She did not. She did not. No. And, I mean, this this bus driver, what was his name? Butch? Or what's his name? His name was... Hold on, let me find it here. Anyways, the bus driver thought that this was weird because he knew that the uh, area that they were in was shit for cell phone reception. Hmm. He knew that that was just that she, he thought it was strange and suspicious because he just knew that there's no way she was going to get a signal. And this was back in 2004 when cell phones were barely a thing, anyways. So, and people have driven out to this location. They've people have kind of driven this the the last little stretch of road that she was on before she went missing. And you cannot get cell phone reception out there today. Hmm. So it is a it is a very rural area as far as that goes. Could that explain the bad police work too? Well, here's the thing. Okay, so th- this lady, the first lady called uh, at around 727. Um, around that time is when he showed up. He has his interaction with her. She says, um, you know, I've, I've already called. So like you said, knowing there was no cell phone reception, thinking that was fishy, he returned home and ended up calling the police. His call was received by the sheriff's department at 743 p.m. He was unable to see Marie uh, or her car while he made the phone call, but he did notice several cars pass on the road before the police arrived. So you're talking about maybe a six-minute window. And, yeah, I think they said it was only seven minutes. I actually think it was. Um, And the bus driver, he goes home, and he backed his bus, like, back into his driveway so that the, you know, the driver's windshield would be facing outward. And uh, he was in his bus for like 20 minutes doing paperwork. So a neighbor did see him sitting in his bus doing that paperwork. So he was out there. That's and, how he saw that. And some uh, now some people have have pointed at the bus driver as maybe, but he was cleared, right? Like 100% by the cops? I mean, yeah, I think it's interesting because of the fact that when the dogs are brought out and they kind of track her scent, it's only for about 600 feet and it's up the road in the direction of the bus driver and i mean there's so you could kind of look at that and go weird and he was maybe the last person that saw her right. so just by you know 
but criminal. It, but it also, I mean, you could say that since this is a rural road and it's only goes one way or the other way, that she had to walk one way or the other way. Yeah, and and there were no footprints going into the woods. Hmm. So and and so well, and and this is what's so interesting. At seven forty six is when the police officer arrived at the scene, and no one was inside or around the car. So she her disappearance was literally in the three or four minutes that it took him mm-hmm. to leave the accident, go home. It was home seven, back. I think. Seven minutes is, I think, what they decided it was. From the time he left her mm-hmm. to the time she, the police, the police arrived. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing probably took about 20, the whole accident and everything, and him yeah. pulling up. and then So yeah. seven minutes, mm-hmm. which is a long time. So it says that the uh, impact of the accident had pushed the car's radiator into the fan, rendering it operable. So it wasn't going to, it wasn't, going to work anymore the car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side and both airbags had been deployed the car was locked inside and outside the car were red stains that looked like red wine um inside the car officers found an empty beer bottle and a damaged box of franzia wine on the rear seat in addition he found a triple a card issued to murray blank accident report forms gloves compact disc makeup diamond jewelry two sets of MapQuest driving directions one to burlington to vermont one to stowe to vermont murray's favorite stuffed animal and not without peril a book about mountain climbing in the white mountains missing were murray's debit card credit card and cell phone none of which have ever been located or used since her disappearance um the police also reported later that some of the uh liquor bottles that she purchased were also missing um, yeah, I don't think they ever found the Kahlua or the, so the box was there, but they also had a Diet Coke bottle that was empty, but they said it smelled like booze and the red liquid that was presumably wine was like up on the ceiling of the car and then kind of also forward. So as if it like had been hit and thrown out of, you know, a glass. And so a lot of people kind of think obviously this, she was drinking while right. she was driving. And to me, it's like, if you've um, possibly committed a, a uh, hit and run crime, and then you crashed your dad's car. You're already on parole for credit card fraud. You plead with the bus driver to not call the police because if you seriously, if she gets a if she gets a DUI or something while she's on parole, she's going to go to jail. Yeah, she's going to go. She's I, this, this is going to happen. So this is like her seventh strike. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. She'll she'll go to prison. Yeah. So to me, I I can understand why she was pleading. And the idea of leaving the vehicle, I mean, people say that drunk drivers will do this all the time when they're driving drunk. You know, if they crash, they'll they'll leave the vehicle, um, abandon it, and they'll come back when they have sobered up so that they cannot be, you know, they can say something like, I blacked out or I, I don't know what happened. And so they will do that sometimes. They will leave the vehicle. Um, it did say that around uh, 8 to 8.30, a contractor who was returning home saw a young person moving quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112 about four to five miles or six to eight kilometers uh, east of where Murray's vehicle was discovered. He noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hood. He didn't report it to police immediately due to his own confusion of dates, only discovering three months later uh, when reviewing his work records that he'd spotted the young person the same night that Murray had disappeared. Hmm. Um, so the responding officer, the bus driver said they drove the area searching for Murray, um, just before 8 PM emergency services and fire truck arrived to clear the scene. And by, uh, nine o'clock, the car had been towed to a local garage. Um, so, you know, it, and that was it. They never found, I mean, they, there was a huge search effort. Like you said, um, it was, a uh, within, what was it? 30 hours or so later when the search effort really ramped up, 
because uh, you know, they, they thirty nine I think was how long was when they brought had, in the dogs yeah, and everybody, uh-huh. and, and like you said, they the dogs caught a scent from um, was it a, was it the rag that was stuffed in her tailpipe? No. What, what, no. what, what rag did they smell? <laughs> no, they they. Well, there was no. a rag stuffed in her there, tailpipe. I can't let's remember get what to she that. said. Okay, let's clear the, the tailpipe thing up. Right. Now, Fred, when they found the car and Fred arrived. He was like, if you find a tailpipe or a rag in her tailpipe, I told her to put it there. Um, let's come back to that in just a second. No, of course not, because that would smell like exhaust. Right, I don't know. And said... that would probably kill the dog. <sighs> so what did they do? I think we just need to take a moment to just sit in this. Just say what you're going to say. <laughs> well, I remember him saying he wished that they would have given him something no, else No, because she smell. had been given some black gloves for Christmas gloves, or gloves. That's what it was. And they were brand new, and they gave that to the dogs, and they were kind of like, well, why did you give something that was new that she hadn't really worn rather than something like her running shoes or something like that to to uh, track? Mm. And he and he only tracks it, like you said, a few hundred feet up the road, and then, the, and then nothing. 600 feet up the road, and, and then that's it's it. gone. So... Um, and they never like, found footprints. They never found. No, there were no footprints leading into the snow. So, I mean, you could rationalize that maybe she got into a vehicle. Maybe a stranger picked her up. Um, some people have theorized that it could have been like a, a, not, not a serial killer, but just a, a not a good person who was listening to the police scanner and overheard that she was uh, stranded. Stranded, and, and there was a, a young girl who needed help and couldn't leave, and, and maybe someone came and grabbed her. So, people theorize that, but. But she was never, I mean, she was never found. No trace of her, no bones, no anything, nothing. And Mm -hmm. they searched for miles in all directions. And so I'm with you. It seems to me that if there's, I I mean, yeah, a young girl, I I don't think she would just run into the woods. It seems like, let me grab a few of my things and maybe you can drive me somewhere where I can be warm. But also, why would you, And I guess you're fleeing the scene of an accident. Maybe you go somewhere and, you know what, that, that might make sense. That if she thought, you know, I've been drinking, so I'll leave and I'll take some of the alcohol with me. And so I'll go somewhere where I can be warm and then I'll take a drink. And when they come to test me, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I had a drink after the accident. Of course, there's alcohol in my system. And she maybe just got in the car with the wrong person thinking she was going to go somewhere and be able to do that. Now, I mean, the effects of hypothermia would also be amplified by someone who had been drinking. Sure. Um, so she probably so that could have happened, but again, they didn't find any body or clothing or and the really speculation that she her. had hit her head too, yeah. and maybe wasn't thinking straight. Mm-hmm. But again, also, if you're not hit, you you probably wouldn't be an expert evasive, you know, woods ninja. You'd probably stumble off into the snow somewhere, obviously, and fall down. So I, none of that makes any sense. Now, there was the the I the, would think you would walk down the. street. The road. You would. Yeah. You or just stay Hoping put. Hoping that a car goes by. Yeah. But again, you're also afraid of being arrested for a DUI. So you have that in your head. So it, it, none of this makes you rational. You're drunk. You may have hit your head. You're sexy. You're girl. young. Yeah. You're scared. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure her being sexy had a lot. Yes. That weighs heavily in all the decisions you make. Um, so you have to think about it from a sexy point of view, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so she's got to do something sexy to get out of this. And so that's <laughs> now Jesus Christ. There was there was the one twelve dirt bag theory, which is is kind of um, an internet story that uh, has supposedly been a hundred percent checked into and 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 cleared. But it is a strange story. Um, on the eighth anniversary of Mars' disappearance, 
uh, a video was posted on YouTube. Um, it's a video of this weird guy just laughing into his computer's camera for, I don't know, a minute and a half. And then he winks at the screen and, and the screen says, happy anniversary. Um, the name of the channel, the person who was posted by, was 112 Dirtbag. And why people thought this had something to do with Mara, um, this video alone, was the fact that uh, she went missing on Route 112. And her, in, in his interview, her father said that she may have been, quote, taken by dirtbags. So people thought that this was a direct reference. So this guy wasn't hard to find. His name was Alden Olson, and he was checked out by police but cleared. Um, even though this wasn't the only video that he released, um, he actually made another video which was since been deleted, entitled Mara Murray, that was just a picture of a ticket to Bretton Woods Mountain Resort in New Hampshire. And the ticket was dated February 11th, 2004, which was two days after Mara went missing. Um, his other video uh, that was on um, that had something to do with this, that people thought had something to do with this, was just four minutes of him playing weird music on a keyboard. But then it cuts to a picture of a shape and some numbers, and then a face that winks at one point. And James Renner, who uh, you read a lot of his work on Mara Murray, has, mm-hmm. he's got a blog, he's, yeah. he's looked into this a lot. He thought that this actually, the shape actually coincides with buildings and features um, on the Bretton Wood Resort, and that it uh, these numbers coincided with where he believed Mara's body was, although Bretton Woods has never been searched. Which I don't know why. I mean, just check it out. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Again, a lot of this just seems... And a lot of people think that, like, the winking eye is, like, the hole that's the, like, like I don't know if it's, like, the 18th hole on the right. golf course or whatever it is. But they think that the winking eye is kind of, like, right here. She's right, right here. here. Yeah. yeah. There's some interesting... There's some... There's some... <laughs> <laughs> Was it the winking? What gotcha? I could just feel him like he's gonna the winking. Eye. <laughs> it is. It is a weird. It is a weird thing. I. I again. I just. A lot of people believe that this guy is kind of just a troll who wanted attention and got involved with the case. Um, but yeah, again, I mean, they think he's crazy. But it's it's worth. I don't know. What's that ticket all about? How, how can we get check an explanation? It out. Yeah. Right. Just check it out. I don't know. But yeah. Ever since then, ever since that day, there has been no trace of Mara Murray. There's been no advancements in the case, no bones, no, no, no belongings, nothing, nothing at all. And it's and it's just another one of those where she was there and then she was gone. But the but the most interesting fact about all of this is it's like unless Mara was just like, listen, Mara needs some Mara time, and I'm not going. I'm just going to go somewhere and I'm going to go be by myself. Nobody's ever come forward and said that she intended to meet them and that's what the alcohol was for and that she was coming to a party. Her boyfriend never said that he was gonna, she was going to go meet him. Another man has never come forward um, and said she was coming to meet me. Uh, you know, I, there's just there's no record of, of any other person or why, like they said, why she had, she had left, where she was going, or if she even knew where she was going. So... It's we we were talking about this and and we had talked about it kind of it's kind of like uh, the movie Psycho where the first part of the movie is the woman's in a caper and she steals a bunch of money and then halfway through this woman stops at a hotel and doesn't realize she's in a horror movie all of a sudden and then she gets killed and everything now it's a different movie um, because like you had the idea that maybe two things overlapped. I have a lot of ideas. 
So I don't know what you mean. Well, the, that you had we had talked about it, and, and the idea that perhaps that she had been planning to go away or something like that, and somebody who had nothing to do with anything just grabbed oh, her. Yeah, that they don't. Yeah, that there's no coincidence, really. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some of your other ideas? Uh, are you ready for that? Are yeah. you ready for my theory? I'm... Oh, okay. Um, okay. I I like to look at the the players at the game that we are kind of that seem weird or that we're kind of surpassing. So I was like, Fred's kind of weird, right? Her dad. Right. He's kind of weird. And the reason that he's kind of weird is because during this whole investigation and things like that, he did not want any publicity. So he was not really wanting to push, um, you know, he didn't want to get a lot of press coverage. He, and which is interesting because why wouldn't a father want that to, to help find his daughter? Um, we can go back to the rag and the tailpipe. Fred shows up and he says, uh, you know, if you find a rag in her tailpipe, I was the one that told her to do that. And the first thing I says, that's fucking weird. I've <laughs> never heard of that shit. That sounds like how you kill yourself in your garage. You clog your tailpipe and right. you die of carbon monoxide poisoning. So is that what it is? Carbon yes. monoxide? No. Anyways. So, um, but I had also kind of Googled things about that. And I'd seen like if it was an old timey hack or, or things like that. And the only thing I could really think of is that if... She was going to try to trade in this shitty car. And Fred had said that her Saturn had, it was running off of three cylinders essentially. And it was kind of a piece of shit. So if that's the case and it was kind of putting out and emitting this dark black exhaust, there's a chance that maybe you could wet the rag and put that in the tailpipe. And that kind of, it only would work if it was wet though. And that it would kind of filter the smoke, keep it white, and not show so much smoke. So maybe there's a chance, like, it was in there um, while they were either trying to show the car and if they were uh, used car shopping and they were just trying to get an extra $100 out of the vehicle. Mm. Or, you know, it could have been, like, this car was doing that, and if a cop sees you, he's going to pull you over immediately because it's spitting out this black, nasty-ass smoke, and it it's clearly shouldn't be on the road. So he could have been telling her that so that she could drive it temporarily without getting pulled over. I mean, because she was in trouble with the law. Yeah. I mean, so she gets pulled over. She's on parole. So he could have been telling her that to um, help her while she's just getting around temporarily without a new car. So if you look at Fred and you go, he's a weirdo. Why is he being suspicious? But I don't necessarily think he killed her. Then maybe he helped her escape. That's kind of like my theory is maybe escape her dad. What? Well, if if... Okay, if I'd heard a couple things, and I believe a couple things, if Fred was truly upset about the car accident and something happened at the hotel room, a lot of people believe that something very violent took place at the hotel room after Mara crashed her dad's Corolla. If that happens, she could have left, and that could have been why she left. I mean, she did have not, like, the best relationship relationship with her parents. She was kind of getting in trouble. I mean, she was a good scholar, but she was kind of a bad kid. She she liked to to mess around a lot. So, um I had also heard that she was getting kicked out of West Point, which was this I think a military academy, which is what her dad attended. He was very proud of that. And I think he was not happy at all because it was like a stain on him that she was getting kicked out, and I think the combination of that and the car accident, something could have you know, a really big falling out could have happened between her and her father and she could have just been like, "Peace, I'm out." Um, why would she get the, uh, the, I guess, why would she get the accident report forms if she was trying to escape? That's a, that's an interesting thing to me. Well, um, I wonder about that. 
I don't know if she was just doing small. Th- this is my thing. I I either think something happened to Mora because I don't think she committed suicide. Um, just the things that she was doing doesn't seem like a suicidal person, but it does seem like either something happened, like she was taken, abducted, or someone bad got a hold of her, or she willingly left. Um, and the reason I'm kind of more on that is because of the interaction with Fred. Like, why is he covering up for his daughter if some if someone would have abducted her? Yeah, you know, but. Then there's the issue of the $4,000 that he supposedly had in cash on him. Um, And nobody's ever proven whether or not he's taken that back to his house when he left Mara or didn't. And so a lot of people think that he actually gave her the $4,000 in cash. And that was a way of of her leaving. So um, a couple more important things to know. And was her boyfriend's name Billy? Was that his name? Billy Roush or something like that? I I think it was. Hmm. Um, Anyhow, so she's been with Billy. It's her high school boyfriend. However, both of them through emails um, and that email that she sent to him that night actually started with, I love you more, stud. I got your voicemail or I got your emails. So that's how she started that. So maybe he was telling her, I love you. And she replied. Um, Either way, they had gotten emails from each other and they had kind of told each other they had both been cheating or they had been unfaithful to each other. So he had admitted that he had cheated on her. She had cheated on him. Um, So we know that there's infidelity within this relationship. Uh, and this is the thing. I, I started Googling how did Maura Murray's boyfriend react to her missing? And I started finding other things because I'm like, well, is Billy weird? Like, is he mad? Did he do something to her? Um, and again, with no one ever coming forward saying that they were going to meet her, it wasn't her boyfriend saying that he was here. The only other thing I could think of is if it was this person that she was cheating with, if who wouldn't need to tell us that she was coming forward. Right. So if there was any chance... Um, and my theory is if Mara did hit Vitri or Vetri on the campus and left him for dead and all this shit was happening, there's a chance she decided to fake a car accident to kind of account for the damage on her vehicle. And from that point, once it happened, um, she could have been picked up by this boyfriend or, or, you know, this guy who she was seeing and they could have just been gone. And that was it. I mean, she could have literally just gone and started a new life. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It That's would take, where it, it would take it, it would take an awful lot of planning to. Well, unless they, I mean, how would you know the exact place to get in the accident? And, and uh, I don't know that you would. I I just think he maybe he's following her. But then she wouldn't go up to the bus. Well, past the bus driver. I don't know. There's still there's just so many questions because she had to have a legitimate accident. Yeah, that happened. She had to legitimately have people believe that if if she was covering a hit and run, you know, the damage from a hit and run, and trying to cover it up with more damage, she would have to have people believe that she was in a real accident. Right. Well, and then I wonder that I wonder if there's if there were any reports of um of the campus police or whoever was investigating the hit and run getting closer to maybe figuring out who it was, why she felt like she needed to escape. I don't know. There's 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 a lot of this that that has wasn't necessarily well documented and might not ever have been, you know, yeah. documented. It's, it, it's it's crazy. So in the end, what do you do? You think she's alive, or do you think she's dead? I don't know. On this uh, James Renner blog post, I want to read you this thing where someone found a post, and it was from GeoCities, and it was by uh, a poster named City Girl or something like that. And this is what it says: It's really fine print. So one, okay, it says, "Maura Murray is not a missing person." Maura Murray has the right, as every independent adult does, to leave with her new boyfriend and start a new life. 
Moore is living a content and satisfying life in the province of Quebec. Moore's father, Fred Murray, never qu- never quite forgave her for being asked to leave West Point. It was his personal bragging point that he had two daughters at West Point. Moore's dismissal damaged Fred's ego, and he never completely forgave her. Moore's being asked to leave West Point and all the ensuing criticism by her father was the beginning of a certain line of thought for Moore, culminating in her leaving on February 9, 2004, to start a new life, unencumbered by the constant criticism of her father. Moore's relationship with William Rausch, okay, so it was Billy, was near its end. According to Moore's sister Kathleen, they were having serious problems. Moore had met someone new, who, unlike William, had no West Point connections, and therefore was not a constant reminder of her, fa- of her failure at West Point. On the night of February 5th, uh, 2004, Moore took a break from her job at the security desk at the UMass dormitory to go and briefly get a coffee and some food. Sometime between 12 MN, and this is important and I'll tell you in a minute, and 1 AM, Moore driving her Saturn struck and critically injured the UMass student Petri Vasi, leaving him for dead. Around 1 a.m. to 1.20 a.m. February 6th, Mora had a complete emotional breakdown brought on by this hit-and-run accident. Mora's breakdown was witnessed by a student who reported this to Mora's supervisor, who then came and saw that Mora needed physical help to get back to her dormitory. The supervisor then physically helped Mora back to her dorm and recommended counseling. Between 2 and 3 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, February 8th, Mora had a second motor vehicle accident wrecking her father's new car. Fred... Fred Murray's new car was towed around 3 a.m. to his Hadley motel room. Mora arrived at Fred's hotel at the same time as a passenger in the tow truck. Fred was not happy with Mora, to put it mildly. Mildly, What happened in this motel room, we'll never know. The next day, Mora left for good. Mora needed to disguise the evidence of the Petrit Vasi hit and run by staging another accident for the purpose of covering up the damage to her car from the Vasi hit and run. She and her new boyfriend traveled to in tandem to Route 112 in New Hampshire. He was already in southern New Hampshire. The accident was staged. She was left her Saturn, walked down the road to where her boyfriend was waiting for her in his car. She disappeared. She only wish, Her only wish is that she be left alone to live her life in peace. She is happy and contented and just wants to be left alone. So this is a weird post that pops up on this, this site. And they kind of trace the IP address and things like that and some of the people who are commenting. And they kind of figure out that one of the commenters is actually Mora's cousin. So it's kind of interesting because no one has ever said anything, you know, within the family about things. But if everyone in the family were truly covering for her and willing to go with this story, then they never would. Um, Let's get to the thing that I was going to tell you about, about where it says 12MN. Sometime between 12 MN and 1 AM, so midnight, that's important because that's something that they teach nursing students um, so that they never get midnight, like the 12 midnight and 12 noon confused for like pills and things like that. They teach them that MN. So someone points out that that's very interesting that that's in there because either they think that Maura wrote this herself because she was a previous nursing student or that one of her friends wrote this for her and she could have been contacting that nursing student that she was calling um she also did borrow a lab coat from one of her nursing friends so she was going to either return that and so she could have been making that call to return the coat or she was telling her friend and her friend is the one updating people on this Hmm. so she's been able to stay off facebook this whole time or she's a different person and that's the thing i mean like since 2004 times of Completely changed, and I don't. She- and you would have. I mean, thirteen years. A woman can very change, very much change her appearance. Uh, totally different looking human. Being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, she could, she, she could, she could be anybody now. She mm-hmm. could be any fucking body now. Mm-hmm. 
it's kind of weird because that's I I'd, I had kind of looked up to those things and I'm not um, in any way trying to toot my own horn. But when I saw that, I was kind of like alarmed at how much of it had kind of aligned with my own personal theory. theory. And I I don't know. It's I don't know. Either I think that or I have to believe that she's dead somewhere or she's, I don't know. But she was a felon. So you can't go through a Canadian checkpoint unless they she was smuggled in. Unless, Unless, like, she was, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, through, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, very I don't know who possible. this boyfriend was. Could I don't know if, anybody. I don't know if anybody knows much about who this other guy was that she was with. I don't yeah. even, he could have been a Canadian citizen. And this anybody. was post 9 11, though, correct? Mm. So you're, 2004. You're still mm-hmm. going to have, it's not easy to get up through there. It's hard to say. I believe you. I'm just saying, I, I don't know. Unless, so, yeah. <laughs> unless you, unless I, unless you're uh, way north in Canada. Well, yeah. Also, I'm assuming. That it probably wouldn't cost four thousand dollars to get a new ID and passport if you really needed to. If your father's in on mm-hmm. it and you got four thousand dollars, it's not that much of a thing to think that you'd need to just get, uh, you know, you could get a, a new identification. I mean, if it really was that, that mm-hmm. you could buy that. That's very mm-hmm. simple. Yeah, and she's at one of the most prestigious schools in the world, so there's brilliant people everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um. I don't know. I, what you just read me, it, it makes a lot of sense because for her to have been killed or just abducted, it seems strange. It needs, seems like somebody needed to be there to take her because it, yeah, she doesn't, mm-hmm. it just seems strange. So that, that really did, uh, that really did. Some people say that her shift, uh, the night that she was working security and was really upset was over by the time that that had happened or, or something like that. So some people are trying to disprove that she could have, have hit Vetri or Vitri or Petrit, I think his name is. Hmm. Um, so some people are kind of trying to dispute that fact, but to me, it's like as as far as everything lining up in a in a cohesive like path, it kind of seems like that because, like we've said, either either she had to do like one of four things: either she was committing suicide, or she was taken or she died an accidental death you right. know because of the cold or hypothermia or whatever or um but she would, ran away but and, you would and have to assumed me, there would like, have been traces of any of that right so right. I, i'm more on the uh, the line of runaway or abduction versus well, and i guess that's a that's a, that's a less sad idea that she didn't die that she just yeah. wanted to escape and it's her awesome life. like could you imagine being just able, be to, able just to do that run away yeah just boss start yeah. over yeah. um yeah you know what let's take a quick break yes uh, for a second, hit the restrooms, grab a drink, and then we'll come right back with uh, this incredibly strange case of Cindy James. Cough, cough, on, on. I'm going to become the silver fox now, like Anderson Cooper. Goddamn Superman. Jean Benet. Jean Benet.
are uh, we're back here. We we need to take a little break. Sometimes we with with some of these subjects we get a little long, and and we we need to we need to take a break. Probably nice for you guys too. So, welcome back. Anyway, uh, well they weren't just waiting while we were in the bathroom. Well, but you know what? It's a nice dip out of our voices, and it's a nice dip away from it. If they need to take a break and pause it and step away from the podcast and come back, it's a great place to do so. They can do that anytime they want. I give them that power. Oh, you do, do you? Yeah. You bestow that upon yes. them? Yes. <laughs> She's bequeathing powers over here. You made the pause button, huh? Yeah. Shame. Shame. <laughs> she has bequeathed. Um, yeah, but before we left, we were we were kind of finishing up the uh, discussion we had about Mara Murray. And um, now, yeah, the this was interesting because I, we really, this one wasn't on my radar. And I'd never actually heard about this disappearance. And... Uh, we were watching a list of of disappearances, uh, something, and 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 this one popped up, and it was fascinating because th- this is just this is just such a bizarre and crazy story. So I'll give you the basic the basic rundown on this, and then here's the thing: I could go through, and we could go through and talk about this whole case. But in one of the videos that we found, there was about an eight minute segment that is an old news story from the 80s on this um, case. And in it, they interview some of the people that were actually part of this case. Uh, You actually hear some of the voicemails and evidence that they played in court. So I just figured, um, instead of just running through all of the details in the case, we'll play this clip and uh, we can chime chime in and out as it's playing and just kind of let this story so that you guys can hear uh, the actual details and the evidence for yourself. So here's the basic rundown. On June 8th, 1989, the body of 44-year-old nurse Cindy James was found in the yard of an abandoned house outside of Richmond, British Columbia. Her death brought an end to a a six-and-a-half-year period of terror in which she claimed to have been stalked, tormented, and attacked by an unknown assailant. However, after Cindy reported nearly 100 incidents to the police, they were unable to turn up a suspect and started believing she was a mentally ill person who staged all the attacks against herself before committing suicide. Cindy's family felt differently and believed she was murdered. So that's that's the basic outline of this. Mm-hmm. But the details to this story are absolutely insane. And I'm going to let the actual voices uh, from this story uh, tell you this story. And it's really fascinating. We can stop this. Feel free to chime in anytime I can pause this. So anytime you have something to say, guys. The question is, how do you tie your hands behind your own back and then kill yourself? Strange suicide, but that's what the police in Richmond, B.C. called the killing. She was a 44-year-old nurse, Cindy James, who'd reported over a hundred terrifying threats and incidents in the years up to her death. But when her body was found, what seemed so obviously a sadistic murder wasn't obvious at all. Sylvia Sweeney reports on the mystery. It has all the makings of a murder. Cindy's hands and feet tied behind her back. On her right arm, a needle mark. Her body pumped with morphine. It was the end of years of bizarre happenings, years of torment and pain for Cindy James. Her parents believe she was murdered by a sadistic killer. She was so afraid to tell me something. This is her mom. And she said, uh, I need help badly, but I can't tell you, Mom. If I do, I'm afraid for you. And I would say to her, don't let it get you down. Fight! Fight, damn it, girl, fight. And she'd say, I'm trying, Mom. Why in God's name did she have to pay that penalty so early in life? 
when she was doing so much and so desperately cried out for help and wanted to live a normal life. But there is no simple explanation for Cindy's death, not even after a coroner's inquest. It was one of the longest and most expensive in the history of British Columbia. More than 80 witnesses were called. Was it murder or was it suicide? The jury couldn't decide. After three months of gruesome details, they concluded the death was a result of an unknown event and classified the death as undetermined. Vancouver Sun reporter an Neil Hall event. wrote a book about the case. This is probably the most baffling case that I've ever come across. One that's kept me awake at nights. I know anybody who's come across this case, the jurors, the coroner's people, police officers who I've talked to, everybody has lain awake at night thinking, can this be? Can somebody have done this to themselves? Can somebody be out there lurking still and have never been caught? Cindy James was the eldest daughter of Otto and Tilly Hack's six children. At 19, she married Dr. Roy Makepeace, 18 years her senior. She worked as a nurse, but her favorite job was counseling children with emotional problems. Cindy loved children, but had none of her own. She appeared happy, but when Cindy's marriage ended in 1982, her life fell apart. She told her Can parents someone was tormenting her. Who marries someone that's 18 years your senior and have anything in common with them? I don't know. I don't know. Did he have money? Did they have kids together? I don't think she had any kids. Hmm. I don't think it never never, never talks about her having yeah. children. Okay. But yeah, he was he was nearly twenty years. And when you see those pictures, and you guys can see this, I'll post this actual video. Uh, but when you guys see the pictures, I mean, he looks like an older. He older looks man. like those years. He looks like grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it definitely looks different. What, did it say why they got a divorce? Um. No. I. Hmm. It, I, I mean, I'm assuming. Uh, and this doesn't. I, mean, I, I have a lot of reconcilable difference, and we can go back through these when we're talking about this afterwards. But the fact is, is yeah, I, I would assume that just like Sasha just said, after a little while, you realize you have nothing in common with somebody who's twenty years older than you. But I, I do know. I guess now that I've been going back into the dating scene, that a lot of women in their mid to late thirties, early forties, will go for a man in his fifties and late fifties versus. The twenty-three-year-old guy, sure. or the thirty-year-old guy, sure, because they're they're immature they're nice, children. They're nicer, yeah. Well, they also the have their shit nicer. together. Hopefully, I think that's what we're looking for: is someone who's like figured it out, who's not still fucking around, and I don't know. Yeah, don't a, do- know. a nice older doctor. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. So, so that's and and we'll Last I'll look into years, this. But here, she didn't know what a normal existence was like. She couldn't go outside her door and feel safe. Cindy told police she'd received death threats by phone and by mail. Three dead cats were found hanging in her garden. The police put her house under surveillance, but claimed they found no evidence of Cindy's tormentor. She hired Ozzy Caban, a private investigator, to protect her. He tells a different story. He says he once found Cindy at home, victim of a vicious knife attack. Cindy had called Caban on her two-way radio, a protective device he'd given her because her phone lines were often cut. He went to investigate. I didn't know what I had, so I kicked the door in and entered. Uh, I found blood in the kitchen. I found her lying in the hallway where the radio was. Um, I checked for pulse. As far as I was concerned, she was dead. I saw the knife through her hand. There was a note on the knife stating... You're dead, bitch, or something along that line. 
nobody could have done that to, to themselves. Cindy also suffered superficial cuts all over her body. Despite Caban's certainty that someone was stalking her, the police began to question her mental health. Twice her home was deliberately set on fire, but police suspected Cindy had done it herself. As far as Cindy... So let's, let's stop there for a second. The picture of her attack, uh, and to clarify what they were saying, is he finds her, and she's got a knife stabbed through her hand with a note on it, like she had put her hand up and somebody had stabbed the knife through her hand with a note on it. And there's not a lot of blood either, which... Right. Uh, I mean, and then it, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how. I mean, because once that, that wound is put below your heart, it's going to start gushing blood. Huh. Like, and the, she had a lot of the superficial cuts they're talking about. Yeah. They show them in these pictures. They look defensive. They do look defensive, but they also look like something that you could have done yourself. Done to yourself. So that's where this this whole thing lies: is that nothing necessarily looks like she couldn't have done it. Her house g- gets set on fire, right? But it, uh, like, like they're going to talk about here, the the investigators came over and they could never conclude that it looked like somebody had come into the house, that the house had ever been, uh, you know, that somebody had come in and started it and then left. So it always made them think that perhaps Cindy was doing this to herself. Concerned, her credibility was shot. She became despondent and was admitted to the psychiatric ward of a Vancouver hospital. It was here that she wrote this note two years before her death. I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. And as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. Cindy said she was depressed because no one believed she was being tormented by someone who wanted her dead. She told police she believed the tormentor was her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. They encouraged her to phone him, confront him, and tape the conversation. This is an excerpt introduced at the inquest. Are you denying it? denying it. I always have denied it. I have absolutely nothing whatever to do with it. Police found no evidence of Makepeace's involvement. He gave police a tape of a disturbing message left on his home answering machine. (laughs) What an asshole. Now, here's the thing. Where's the beef? <laughs> <laughs> we both, when, when, when Danny and I heard this, we both agreed that that sounds like a woman. It doesn't sound like a man. It sounds like a woman saying. Can we play it again? Yeah. There are some of the ones that Cindy receives that they have, and some of the ones that Cindy receives are even more of a, like, oh, that sounds like a woman. His is a little more growly and gravelly and under breathy. But Here, here's, check here. up the volume, too. Let's hear it one more time. Here we go. I don't think that's a woman's voice. You don't? No. Cindy. You try it now. Cindy. <laughs> Think about this. If she was suffering from some, right, some to, sort of to, multiple personality or like she was life. really, you know. she was bipolar? Yeah. And, and she didn't have hey, recollection of herself doing this. You know, I mean, listen, a man, 
also find, find some of the ones that were I think Cindy. That I'll play the rest okay. of this. They're all in here. I, that's why I was so, going to play so this. Cindy dead meat soon, which that, is kind of a me. funny like. Yeah, I don't know that most de- people. You dead meat. You. You know that's like a that's like not something you say seriously. I mean, we also have to put ourselves in the shoes of of someone who would torture and do these things to another person. Right, so sure. we might leave weird, cryptic, breathy me- messages. But All right, let's let's keep going. I, I believe the other ones are in here. Two weeks after that threat, Cindy was found unconscious in her car. She was naked from the waist down with a black stocking around her neck. Another stocking tied her hands and feet behind her. In a taped interview with police, Cindy could only remember parts of what happened. Whether confused, psychotic, or innocent victim, Cindy James was last seen alive at a shopping mall on May 25, 1989. She came here to deposit a paycheck just before a five-day leave from work at Richmond General Hospital. Her car was found in the parking lot with bloodstains on the door. Police suspected foul play. They launched an all-out search. Two weeks later, Cindy's body was found near this abandoned house a mile from the mall where she was last seen. But instead of providing answers, her death shrouded the case in more mystery. I now believe it's a suicide. I believe it's a murder, yes. Ozzy Caban doesn't buy the suicide theory. He's still working on finding a killer. At the scene of Cindy's death, he explains why he can't believe Cindy's body could have gone unnoticed for two whole weeks. And I cannot see where, with that type of activity, traffic, and being so close to a marine thoroughfare that somebody would have not spotted her. So what does that mean to you? I think she was dumped. So many questions unanswered. The drug overdose. Did Cindy inject herself? There isn't any paraphernalia around her to indicate that she had done it there herself. She's a mile and a half from her car. It doesn't make sense. The police believe she took the morphine by tablets and that she would have had 15 to maybe 30 minutes to tie herself up and make it look like murder. Could Cindy drug herself, tie herself up like this, then lie down and die? The theory was possibly she went out and she bought the pantyhose and then she went and she injected herself and she drank all this stuff down and then she tied herself down, walked over a mile and a half, lay down in the bush, all tied up and died. That's a terrific story, isn't it? That doesn't make any sense. The police wouldn't talk to W5 about Cindy's case, but at the inquest, their testimony favored the suicide theory. I call it a non-investigation because it was not an investigation to determine, in my mind, what caused our daughter's death. It was an investigation to try to pin, get evidence to pin it on her herself. I find it hard to believe that you can't conclusively determine whether it was murder or suicide if you're really trying to solve the case. There is no real conclusive evidence. It's, it's theory, and they're willing to keep investigating. But I don't think they're ever going to find a killer. This is one of those cases that is just so bizarre because this woman is either insane and torturing herself for over six years I mean, elaborately 
doing these things, uh, setting her own house on fire, tying herself up, taking herself and, 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 and drugging her and stabbing her own hands and covering herself in knife wounds and leaving all these phone calls and, and having calls call her house. when I... So it's either this elaborate, giant, crazy person hoax or this poor woman was constantly being tormented by an, a completely unknown, unseen, real assailant. For 11 years. For, for, was it for six, six, six 11? That's a it's, long it, It's a long, right? Men lose um, interest at some point. <laughs> um, she did also go and stay with a friend who was married, and she kind of wanted to stay with them because she was really nervous about, like, these things happening to her, and she was like, can you watch me? So she goes and she stays with this friend, and in the middle of the night, she kind of runs and she wakes him up, and she's like, I heard a, a loud thump downstairs. And the the husband guy of of her friend says, I heard it too. You know, and as they're just about to go down to the basement and check this out, they find that it's completely inflamed. So. Sorry. I was trying to plug this back in and I quietly and I made a bunch of noise. Go um, ahead. So uh, anyway, she, it kind of seems to follow her. And that's the thing. You can either rationalize. I don't know. Any way you look at it, you can go either Cindy's doing this to herself or it's being done to her. But. You know, it following her to her friend's house, either she set their basement on fire um, or this person followed her and, and, you know, was kind of insinuating, you're not safe anywhere you go. I'll find you. So I don't know. It's really, I feel bad for her either way because I don't know how severe people can be like if they have, um, if it's like multiple personality disorder, if they have schizophrenia or bipolar, like in extreme cases where like if a marriage or a stress or a divorce or something like amps it up. Maybe like she had like a, a mental break and and was truly doing this to herself. Or yeah, it said that the harassment began in October of eighty two. It was four months after she was separated from uh, Roy Makepeace. It said it started by her receiving a series of harassing phone calls um, from an unknown male who would sometimes stay silent and sometimes whisper threats. It said it does say a few witnesses, including some police officers, were present to hear some of Cindy's silent phone calls, but never heard anyone else's voice on the line. Hmm. Um, it says that you know, as the months went on, she she got creepy notes. She found the dead cats in her yard. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the first alleged physical attack was in January of '83 when one of her friends discovered she was lying on the ground outside her house with a nylon stocking tied around her neck. Cindy claimed she was attacked, but couldn't provide any details. Um, police felt at the time that she was actually withholding evidence or yeah, and information. Didn't, didn't she like her mom thought that too. Like they really thought that she always knew more about the whole situation than she was letting on. But well, that's she, the thing is she never remembers anything. She later did reveal <laughs> to her family that the attacker held a knife to her throat and threatened her mother and sister if she talked. Mm. Um, mm. you know there there's the the. All the stuff with Ozzy, Caban, the the investigator, the guy who found her with the paring knife through her hand. Um, it does say after that, police would frequently put surveillance on Cindy's house for days, um, but nothing would ever happen. But whenever they pulled their surveillance off and left, Cindy would get attacked almost immediately. Why would you use a paring knife to stab another human being? That seems like uh, an incredibly small instrument. If you didn't want to wound him, just scare him too much, you know, just like a... It also seems like, yeah, like the small knife, you would just sit there and 
you know, cut it yourself mm-hmm. with. No, no, I get using a small knife if you are cutting right as a hu- as an assailant. But, no, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Okay. I just meant if he if this guy, I mean, he could have killed her if if there really was this, this sure. unknown assailant, he could have killed her anytime he wanted to. It's a good knife for pinning a note to somebody's so hand. I think it's just yeah, if he was them. just kind of messing with her, trying to truly, I think she her quote was that she he doesn't want to kill me. He want he wants to scare me to death. He really wants me to be scared enough to die. So, I don't know. That's, that could either be Cindy's multiple personalities speaking to her or, um, you know, if he was just using that knife to just make, like, she had superficial cuts that don't really hurt or wound. It just scares the shit out of you. Yeah. It's just enough. Like It's like, and, and I don't know. It's just such a long, I mean, you have to go, if, if it wasn't somebody that she had wronged or done something to, uh I mean, was just somebody picking her and going, "Look, I'm just going to do all these things to you." Is is fucking terrifying, and and, and it, I don't know that it's ever happened since. So if there had been another case where this, this was this dude's mo, where he just targeted and tortured women, nothing ever happened like that again. So it wasn't yeah. like he was a serial torturer. Yeah, it's it's the police did think that because of the fact that it only happened when they weren't there that she was staging them. I mean, that was what police were being led to believe. Now, in December of '85. She disappeared and was found in a ditch six miles from her home. She had a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck, cuts and bruises all over her body, and was suffering from hypothermia. Again, when she recovered, she had no memory of what had happened. And she was only wearing, like, a glove and a man's work boot, right? Yeah. She was, like, naked other than those two things. Like, one glove, one work boot. Yeah. It's fucking weird. How can they can't know, like, where that work boot comes from? Yeah, whose work boot is Is it? Is it a used one? Is it a brand new (laughs) one that she could have, like, went and bought? Like It's, It's fucking weird. Um, it does say that she changed her name. She moved to a new house. Painted her car. Yeah. I remember? Uh, uh, did everything she could at the time. Um, her friend, uh, the one who had found her previously, Agnes Woodcock, uh, and her husband, Tom, were actually staying at Cindy's house when the burglar alarm went off and they discovered the glass window from Cindy's basement door had been removed. The Woodcocks claimed, Woodcocks, Woodcocks claimed that <laughs> either it's one. redundant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woodcocks. Yeah, it's redundant. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> the dick penises claimed that Cindy <laughs> was with them when the alarm went off, so she couldn't have staged this incident herself. Uh, in April of 86, the Woodcocks were staying at Cindy's house and were woken up after Cindy discovered the basement was on fire. Since the phone lines were cut, Tom went to a neighbor to call the fire department, and when he went out to do this... He saw a man standing outside, and when Tom asked the man to call for help, the dude just took off without saying anything. Hmm. So some people speculate, is this the guy? Did you see the guy? Or was this just somebody passing who was like, I don't want to get involved? You know, but that's weird. He didn't say anything, though. So I don't know. How come he couldn't say this is what he looked like? I don't know. But in spite of the sighting, police believe that Cindy started the fire. And there were no signs of forced entry and undisturbed dust and fingerprints on the outside windowsill. In spite of the threats on her life, Cindy had also made strange decision to take her dog for a walk at 3 a.m. That's another interesting aspect yeah. of this, is that even though there was a man who had apparently stabbed her and, and, and drugged her and left her for dead and all this, she was walking her dog by herself at 3 o'clock in the morning. That was something she did. So... It didn't seem like her behavior was in keeping with a woman who was constantly being threatened and felt like a man could jump out at any time and kill her and take her. That doesn't seem right. Um, I don't know. She did go, like it said, to the psychiatric uh, facility 
Um, now, here's what the psychologist what said. They, how long did they keep her for? Was that a 5150? Or it was, was a month-long months long stay. So and she was there they for a re- while. Release their diagnoses after? It said a what psychotherapist the- examined the possibility that she was suffering from multiple personality disorder. He did not believe this was the case and believed that Cindy was genuinely terrified about what was happening to her. Okay. That's the big statement, too, because it's not one psychiatrist. It's a group of psychologists right. and psychiatrists who have great educational Yeah, so she was at a background. place where they were, they were keeping her monitored for yeah. a while. If there was going to be... Breaks and manic. It was things. only a month. And it, months well, no, no, that's, long. She was in there for a few months. Oh, I was going to say, I thought in the back, note was written. Well, in back then, you have to remember this is before the Reagan Republican administration got rid of mental health facilities. Mm. And like my mother grew up um, as a young psychologist working in these places. Mm. And back in those days, it was big business. It was very serious. And it's not like it is today, where if you're crazy. They're going to give you a 48-hour evaluation and send you on your way because there's no facility for them to go except for private treatment, and most people can't afford that. Right. Mm. Now, here's the interesting thing. After the release from the hospitals when she started accusing her ex-husband, Roy, um, and it was only after she accused him and he said, I'm not doing this, that he received the creepy phone calls. So he never received them unprovoked. It was only after she had gone after Mm. him. Um, police found no evidence that Roy was responsible for tormenting Cindy and believed she was disguised her voice and left the message herself. Mm. So they believed, the police believed wow. that it was the same thing. Um, on October 26, 1988, two weeks after Roy received the message, Cindy was found unconscious in her car in a hogtied position with her hands and feet tied behind her back and naked from the waist down with a nylon stocking tied around her neck with no memory of what had happened. To me, now I'm seeing a pro- I'm seeing a pattern here. There's a lot of like I'm hogtied. Yeah. I'm a lot of hogtied. I'm a lot of this. I'm a lot of being left for dead. Speculation. Could this have been her trying to do this over and over again, getting better at it? And 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 the last time she did it, she just did it and nobody found her. You know, like every time she'd been found, and maybe every time that was how she was gonna try to kill herself, and people just kept finding her. Cause I mean, otherwise this guy's like, look. Every time I take you, I'm gonna hogtie you. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the and not rape you. I, that's the other thing. I don't I don't know that there was ever. I don't think she ever was sexually assaulted Mm-mm. or raped. Mm-mm. So it's more humiliating, but also possibly I might kill you. And if I do, it's so passive that I'm just gonna leave you and you're gonna die. Oh, and here's one glove and one boot. It sucks. It's really weird. I want to. Can you? Did you find the ones of of the ones that she received? I, I found this. This is a. Uh, this is one of the other. Other messages. I don't know which one this is, but uh, it's a Cindy James voice uh, threatening voicemail. So maybe this this might be the same one. I don't know. I'm listening to it now. Oh, this is the same one. Yeah, maybe that is a woman. It really sounds like a woman. To me. <laughs> it does, right? You know what? Let me see what else I can find. There's. I just have to kind of search on YouTube. That's what I can do for these uh, for these voicemails. But. Um, uh, and there were a few others, but they were inside longer videos, so I'd have to find the exact moment. I don't want to sit here and, you know, search around for them. But, they, I mean, I'm sure they're on there somewhere, and we'll mm-hmm. find them and we'll post them online. But, I mean, look, you know, here's the thing. Uh, again, when she was found the final time, she was hogtied, hands behind her back. And there are pictures of the way that her body was found. Uh you know, she was fully dressed. She said there was an injection mark on her arm and her body was pumped full of morphine. Um, 
Police believe that she had staged her disappearance and committed suicide by ingesting all the drugs. A not expert did demonstrate that it was possible to hogtie yourself in the 15 to 20 minutes that it would take for those drugs to take effect. Um, it did appear that there was an injection mark on Cindy's arm, though no syringe was found at the scene. So if Cindy had injected morphine into her bloodstream, she would have been rendered unconscious immediately. So that would have that would have left the you know the syringe and the and the everything else at the scene. So if she had if she had injected herself, uh, it because that paraphernalia was not found at the scene, it does lead people to believe that she was dumped there. Also, the idea that 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 her body was found two weeks after her disappearance in a well traveled area, it leads people to believe that it might not have been there for two weeks. So if that's the case, you know. Also, and I don't know this either. How and I never did hear these details. Is did they ever determine how long she'd been dead when they found her? Like, I don't know because I mean you can check rigor mortis. I mean that yeah, how can, long it come. would be in that position. You could tell how long the body had been in that position, but I don't. Right. So I, I wonder, like, are they? Was she? Are they it certain that she'd been dead for two so weeks? Bad by or had she only been dead? Right. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know those details. A three-month coroner inquest was, was held to determine Cindy's cause of death. And with over 80 witnesses called to testify, in the end, the jury could not reach a decision and determined that Cindy died of an unknown event. Crazy. It's um, crazy. It does say that the, the, her family argued there was no way her body could have been in the yard for the entire two weeks. Um, so it's likely uh, that, that she would have been seen. An entomologist testified that Cindy's body had likely been at the scene since around June 2nd, which still left one week when her whereabouts were unaccounted for. Mm. From so, when they found her car in the parking lot, yeah, right? Mm. From when she got, when she went uh, missing. So, Well, there was blood on the car, and did she have a wound that was consistent on her body with how blood would have been on the outside of the car? Did they test the blood? Like, whose blood that, was that? They they don't give me those details, and from, from everything that we watched and everything that I studied up on, it didn't necessarily say that I, I didn't have those mm. details. So I don't know. I mean, again, this was 1989, so I don't know how much of that... You know, because if police didn't, here's the thing, if police didn't take it super serious and they just thought that this woman was doing it, they wouldn't, they might not have wasted the man hours to do all that. I mean, we're just talking about testing some blood. Right. And who knows how hard that was back in 1989. So I mean, nowadays, toxicology reports still take two to three weeks. So, you know, DNA and stuff like that back in, I mean, I don't know. I'm just speaking for the fact that we don't have that information. It sounds like there is a, there was a relationship between the police department and this woman. If her houses are burning down, if she's always getting kidnapped, right, they're aware of Cindy. Yeah, this could be that bitch is crazy. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, and you can look at it and say, well, nothing happened when the police were there, and and that seems logical. With no attacker would you know rightfully go up and attack her while there was police surveillance, and it would make sense. Or you go, of course, nothing happened because Cindy knew she was being watched. So, I don't know. I mean, it, I would think that if this were going on with you in our local police yeah. department, <laughs> they would probably try to put you in witness protection or encourage you to move away. Oh, or, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's got to be something that they would try to do to save this woman instead of being so laissez-faire with right. their health. I agree. Unless mm-hmm. it was all done by herself. And, and like this girl, and they just nuts. knew it. They yeah. just knew. And 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 again, I guess in, unless you were one of the officers or one of the people that was always around her, it, it would be hard to know how she was all the time. And if 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 there's things that people don't say after somebody goes missing because they, you know, they don't want them to be seen in a bad light or it's something. It's sad. It's embarrassing for the whole family, right. the community. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's in any time somebody just kind of 
has one of these things. Uh, and this is this is so much different because we're, th- this something happened to this woman, right? So I don't think it has anything to do with the supernatural. I don't think that she was being tortured by a ghost or anything like that that could never be seen. I believe she truly was either being tormented by someone who was just really, really good and sick or this woman was completely making up this entire thing and not not because she wanted the attention but because she had something wrong mentally and 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 either way it's just so sad it's just such a sad like her father said sad existence the last eight years of her life she just had to like she was constantly just living like a like a, a nightmare a nightmare hell yeah. on earth yeah i wonder I there's no real history of like her personality or anything like previous to that right like to her marriage and stuff like did she have any uh, indications of mental illness growing up, but or it other can, it can come like overnight. Yeah, I believe you know, that. I think you, especially with stress, you know, or it can always be in there. And mm-hmm. it could have been one drink, it could have been one joint. I mean, there's something that could have triggered it. Yeah, I'd say a divorce, maybe her the stress of a divorce. The pictures of her when they are describing that, you know, when she's married and things like that, she's so happy. And then they show her after, and she's like all skinny and gaunt and sad looking. So I mean, something is like physically taking its toll on her that you know it's it's manifesting itself her thoughts or her worry or whatever is physically manifesting itself within her body to reflect her fears but it's it's interesting i don't know what to think about cindy i either think she did it and it's it's or it's like the perfect crime you do just enough stuff that it would make people start questioning themselves and if they were doing it and it's you're the perfect murderer you know but then you haven't done this again so it was like what your greatest accomplishment with Cindy James, and then you're just like, that's good. I'm just gonna go back over, to being a over over a six non and a half creeper years. dude, one hit yeah. wonder, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, really weird. So I don't know. Yeah, I I mean the Cindy James case is one of those ones where it, I really don't want it to be the case that she was faking. I don't want it to be that this poor woman was trying to do this to herself. That's horrible. However, I listen to that voicemail. It sounds like a woman. All the things that happen. It sounds like it just. But but if it was the perfect crime, wouldn't it? Wouldn't he try to do everything he could to make it be like? I, I fuck. It's just so. Yeah, I mean, the perfect crime is to have people start questioning the victim. I mean, that's like, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's it's just so frustrating because you you get to the end of these, you study them, you you look over them, you get all these ideas, you get all these these theories together, and then there really isn't. An answer because we don't know. We can only speculate. So I don't know. Let me let me ask you this: final notes, final thoughts on Cindy. Do you think she did it herself, or do you think she was targeted by the best assailant? You know, I think I think she did it. I think she killed herself. The only thing that catches me up is her body showing up out of nowhere at a busy location. But it, from the video, it looked. Like it was still pretty far away from a sidewalk too, and in a place where people might not be cutting fields to go somewhere else. I don't know. You'd really have to look at the landscape that's going on. Right. The thing that bothers me about these whole stories the last couple of weeks is how often women are being murdered, and I think there's got to be something in our society that needs to change. Whether we legalize prostitution, whether <laughs> you know. <laughs> Something has to happen so that men can well, I th- not I think, have to kill women to get laid. Like, well, and I think too that a, a lot of these just—I mean—they're all—they're all kind of in different veins, you yeah. know. Some of them, like we speculated last week, have to do with 
possibly sex crimes or sex trading. Uh, Mara could have just been a complete, you know, ploy to get away from her life. Cindy could have been complete um, mental health issues. It, it could have been somebody exacting some sort of weird revenge or 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 some sort of strange experiment. To to me, I mean, I I listen to that voicemail. It sounds like her voice when I hear it. On the other things, I can I can hear her voice in the police interview being able to do what those voicemails did. And even if she left that one, but then you go, well, what if she left that voicemail to try to prove a point to him, but the rest were real. And that was like a desperate attempt to get somebody on board. I don't know. I don't know. I can't judge her. I I do think though, I'm with you. I think that it does seem weird that her body was in a place for a week, uh, not being seen, but it seems like it, 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 it wasn't that, that hidden. Do they know, like how long she had been dead because I don't know like how quickly bloat comes in and right. then and then goes away. It's but she doesn't she, look she doesn't look like a decomposing. It didn't look daughter. like she'd been the, the entomologist said she'd been there for a week, which I'm guessing what, what the entomologist does is being able to say, well, based on the bugs and the gestation, the things and the you know, bugs. Yeah, rigor mortis and things like that. Well, but entomologists would do strictly insects. So oh. I mean I'm assuming that he's he's talking about um maggots, you know, maggots and, and, and mm-hmm. wounds and things like that. So you know, he he would probably have a very so if her body had been there for a week, I mean, I mean she could have been alive for that week if she was only dead for if it was, only she wasn't actually dead for the two weeks that she was missing. I right. mean, she could have herself been like somewhere, right? And then finally killed herself when they found her, and it right. was just her in a mental breakdown in somewhere. I mean, Cause she I could have think... literally been in that in that abandoned house just for a week, like yeah. That's true. Freaking out in a corner. And like, you know, I mean, I don't know. The police didn't say, and and again, they when they found it, they her final thing was that they thought that she had staged it and committed suicide, which leads me to believe that there wasn't bruising and punching, and she hadn't been tortured or or, or you know, and nothing had happened. And in her the- note, she said she, that's what she wanted to do as soon as she got out of the the mental hospital. It's interesting though that she had a job back at the the hospital though, and was like cleared to be a normal working nurse who administers. And, he- and work with kids but with yeah, mental she might disorders. be this yeah. this crazy lady. Like that's really weird. It's a, it's um, Sigmund Freud says the only reason why people become doctors is so that they can touch other people. Really? <laughs> yeah. Who's oh, your thought? I'm a hugger, but I do not want to cut open a fucking spleen, Sasha. Yeah, like, I, yeah I think there's got to be. I think there's probably one. There or might two be other a gray area in that Freudian <laughs> theory. <laughs> he needed more coke. To yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all but right. I mean, she could have actually been. She could have known that this was another identity of hers and been honest with the identity telling her, don't tell your mom and dad because you'll kill them. I mean, maybe her identity, her other personality would have seen her parents as a threat if she told them and then would have killed them. Or truly, her her not saying I know more is her knowing that it's a side of her that comes out. You know, her right. her Dr. Jekyll, her Mr. Hyde, whatever it is, it, it might be like this other side maybe of herself. Maybe one personality doesn't know that, know that it's withholding. Or it does is what I'm saying, oh, oh. and, it, and it, oh, that's why she says I can't tell you what I know, or right. you know, and or you know, they they told me not to say anything because I would they would hurt my mom and sister. Maybe that's her personality saying if they know your secret, right. you will hurt them either by the reputation or you will physically kill them. Or, yeah, or or she wasn't aware of the split. It was that severe. It's, but then this doctor said know. he didn't see it. I don't, I don't know. know. We want to know what you guys think. What do you yes. guys think happened tomorrow? What do you guys think happened to Cindy? What do you think happened with the updates? Do you think that Jack the Ripper's been found? Do you think that that man was assaulted by a Bigfoot or just a really big, hairy, <laughs> horny guy out in the woods of Colorado? It's Old hard to say. Stink dick. Old 
<laughs> you know, they say old stink dick ro- roams those hills. You can smell him coming from... All right. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, no matter what uh, you guys think, I think we can all agree that these disappearances are tragic and are just, I, I mean, unnerving. To say the least, uh, that people can just disappear. People can be tormented. People can live these nightmares or have these lives or these incidences happen to them. So, I don't know. Just we, We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, make sure you connect with us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can just search Area 52 Podcast on any of those. You can also find us on, well, clearly you're listening to us on something, but iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, any of the podcast apps. Make sure you do subscribe. And make sure you head over to iTunes on your computer or laptop and rate us. Leave us a review. Give us five stars. Come on. We're worth five stars, right? This was a five-star podcast We're today. We're six, goddammit. If there were six, we would get six. We can only get five, so give us a, at least that many. Because like you pointed out, we're worth more. So go do that. It helps us uh, move on up the ranks. But um, and, and pray for Eric. And pray for And Melissa, wherever she is. Melissa will be back. I believe she should be back next uh, next episode. Missing, missing person yeah. disappearances, um, and we haven't even looked into our own. <laughs> I don't want to look. I, I, Melissa. I don't want to look too deep into Eric. I don't want to. I'm afraid of what I might find. So, but thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is officially our 60th episode. Whoa. That's crazy. 60 episodes We're of like this We're like senior podcast. citizens we, now. Yeah, we get five, we get like five more. And we get like dinners and shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get into the pool for free. AARP. Yeah. Uh, H-A-A-R-P, right? I've already made that joke. Yeah, all right, well, <laughs> there we go. All right, well, on behalf of Danny, on behalf of our guest, once again, thanks for sitting in, Sasha. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Boo! <laughs> 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 That's the noise. Boo! That's for Sasha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, and hey, we'll see you next time. Something in the shadows